Rewatch podcast here on Poster Recaps. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wiggler. Mike, 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 get off the photocopier. What are you doing? Josh, get off of that thing. Josh Wiggler making oh. copies. Get off of that. That's that's very fragile equipment. Get your get your get yourself down from but there. But Josh, with the C eight one five, the entire office can see a picture of my ass in less than oh. fifteen seconds. My ass. Oh my. God. God, Mike. Yeah, speaking Bloom. of throwing rocks, uh, Jonathan <laughs> Petter could learn a lesson from Ethan. Indeed. Oh my God! Indeed, absolutely. Didn't even think about that. All right, here we are, Lost Down the Hatch, Season One, Episode Fifteen, Homecoming, and what a homecoming it is, Mike Bloom. Absolutely, we've got the banners strewn out. The cheerleaders are coming in. Uh, actually, fun fact, Josh. Probably some the least thing you would suspect. Of me back in my collegiate days, I was elected to our homecoming court my senior year. I'm not surprised by this. This really? makes sense. No, this tracks for me. This tracks for me. Tell me more about it, though. Well, basically, I was elected to the homecoming court because uh, the previous semester, second semester of my junior year, I had won a pageant at our school. I won the title of Mr. Muhlenberg, and I, I guess I sort of rode that wave. I in no way... Uh, this is you bad were to Mr. say. Mr. Muhlenberg? I was Mr. Muhlenberg. Uh, How do we not know this about you? <laughs> uh, I'm, listen, Why is this not your Twitter handle, Mr. <laughs> Muhlenberg? I, now I might have to uh, grab it before someone pulls a Count Jacula and tries to, to sit oh on it. God. But, oh my yeah, God. But yeah, I, uh, I, it's another flashback maybe that we haven't discovered yet. I, I won a pageant amongst uh, a lot of the guys at my school, and I guess I sort of like wove that title, rode that title wave into first semester senior year. I will admit, unfortunately, it was not something I uh, really sought out. Uh, I was just sort of like, all right, I guess I'm sort of along for the ride here. Uh, uh, to the point where, you know, uh, I was at a football game. I sort of like dressed down, didn't realize I needed to dress formally for anything. I did end up losing, so I guess I, I did not need to dress up completely. But that is my brief dalliance with popularity. And, you know, it's, it's those golden oldies that we want to always go back to, much like the days of Driveshaft. Wow. Oh, my God. Mr. Muhlenberg himself here on Lost Down the Hatch. The pleasure is all yours. Oh, I'm honored. I've never had such a famous <laughs> guest at my dinner table before. Yeah, though maybe I guess, uh, well, should I have been pulling a Charlie and be like, hey, do you uh, do you know uh, Muhlenberg? 
Do you happen to know any any royalty there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Well, Mr. Muhlenberg and I are going to be going down the hatch <laughs> talking about Homecoming this week, the, the, the 15th episode of season one of Lost, the second ever Charlie Pace flashback episode, an episode that Damon Lindelof, I believe, has come out and said uh, is one of his least favorite episodes of the show. Uh, and he's the sole credited writer on this one. So is this an instance of him being honest about his work? Is this an instance of him being too harsh on himself? Mm. Uh, I think that we will we'll weigh the matter as we go forward. Um, it's going to be, this is going to be a fun show. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Mike, or should I say Mr. Muhlenberg, but <laughs> I really need this Lost podcast right now. I'm really happy to have this. This is very, very good for me. Uh, and I'm, and I'm very excited to get into all of this with you. I think that we've got a really, a really fun, uh, hour or 300 of podcasting ahead of us here today. Yeah, I actually wanted to bring that up, if not at the beginning, outright at the end. Because, you know, looking, I guess, a little more uh, outwardly at the general post-show recap slash Rob has a podcast universe, this might be one of the darkest, most uncomfortable weeks of television, at least I've experienced in recent memory. And, you know, I was thinking through approaching this episode, even if it's not one of my most favorites, and something that I've always come back to, and, you know, Getting the opportunity to talk with fans either online or at these events about Down the Hatch. One of the things that has still surprised me, even like three months into this thing, is the fact that people have such an association with Lost. You know, we might all have our gripes with the way certain characters turn out or the ending or certain plot points. But Lost is such a positively associated show in hopefully a lot of our lives, at least for the people that are listening, that... I am so eternally grateful for this podcast, for this community, for Josh, you bringing me in down the hatch to put on the uniforms, clean Kelvin Inman's brains off the wall. <laughs> that was a tough job. Exactly. Yeah, and, and continue a lot on. Of elbow because, grease. I mean, to, to be quite honest, you know, a lot of shit can happen out there in the world, even directly within spheres in which we, we are personally involved. And, and sometimes, at least from a mental health perspective, and, and you feel like you are tossed around the sea uh you know just feeling like you need someone to, to come grab you like you find a rock in the water you, you find a black rock and for me down the hatch has really become that for me even in the first few months and so i totally agree especially with this week i extremely look forward to doing this each and every week this you know maybe even more so than others just because this is an opportunity for us to like goof around yet passionately speak about a show that we love so much warts and all and it's an opportunity that i am more than ever grateful to be able to be a part of all right and we are grateful for all of you who are listening to this podcast and going on the journey with us of course if you are just listening to lost down the hatch uh why there's so many other podcasts that we've already done that you should listen to first yeah, I was gonna say, this, come- this, that statement is probably weirdly applied to someone who like just woke up and checked out this podcast like oh he's really speaking passionately about it i guess i better listen to the past 14 episodes <laughs> or like if you like need your wiggler fix all of a sudden it's like all right fine i'll take lost i guess this is your first one welcome <laughs> welcome aboard <laughs> but you should go back and do the full journey but this is a spoiler filled lost rewatch podcast uh we talk about every episode with the full scope of Lost in mind. Uh, we will get into your feedback later on in this episode. If you are not subscribed already, please do so. Postshowrecaps.com slash down the hatch. Your ratings and reviews greatly appreciate. And if you want to get that feedback into us, uh, you want to make sure that that's coming our way by Monday evenings. Uh, you can email us down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. You can tweet at us. I'm at Rand Howard. Mike is at a moon. 
a moom type is what oh, I was going to say. I don't know. Mr. Moomenberg. Yeah. <laughs> at a Mr. Muhlenberg type. At a Mike Bloom <laughs> type. With all that said, and that's all staying in the podcast. None of that's getting out. Oh, yeah. We're moom, is, moom is here to stay. Mo- don't get me wrong. Moom Moo Bloom is here to stay. I'm over the moon with it. Uh, we go forth into the jungle to discuss... Homecoming, as mentioned, written by Damon Lindelof. It is directed by Kevin Hooks. I believe this episode and White Rabbit are the two Kevin Hooks episodes of Lost as director. I don't think that he directed beyond this. He's a prolific director, prolific uh, creator in the television space. Also, we, we typically don't say this, but I need to give a huge shout out uh, to the cinematographer of this episode, mm. uh, episode Michael Bonfillin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing Ooh, that right. Wow. <laughs> Way Michael. to give away your own role in your name there, huh, Michael Bonfillin? <laughs> Villain. I don't know. I, it's, I like maybe is it Bon Villain? I don't know. I'm not Shannon. I don't speak French. I don't know. Is is he bald with a cat? I have as no he, idea. As he works on his his camera shots. Yes, yes. I don't know. But the cinematography of this episode is outrageous. It's just spectacular. Uh, and I and I feel like it's important for us to shout it out. Uh, this episode originally aired February 9th, two thousand and five. That means this ep- this episode aired. Uh, a few weeks after special. I don't remember that. I don't remember that having happened uh, in, I mean, in the real time of this, yeah, but are, I, I buy it. I, I believe it. I mean, when you have like, again, we're used to this day and age of television where it's like, okay, we'll air for 10 weeks straight. Uh, but in the day and age where it was like the 22, 23, in this case, 24 uh, episode season of Lost, uh, you know, I guess there are small breaks, whether it's due to, I don't know, maybe uh, sporting events or just, you know, little holes in the schedule that need to be filled in. I guess the people wanted some time to marinate uh, between us finding Claire at the beginning of special and actually coming to terms with her reappearance here in uh, in Homecoming. But yeah, I guess much like Claire, do, we do not remember. There's a, a whole of lost time, literally, between those two episodes. Uh, it focuses, of course, on Charlie, who we have already covered in our series Bible entries. Uh, so we get another entry for the first time in a little while into our fake Down the Hatch series Bible. Uh, this comes your way from the Ben behind the curtain, Ben Martell, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Uh, and this week for the Down the Hatch series Bible, we're going to place Ethan down the hatch. Ethan Rom. Because this is a, it's a powerful Ethan Rom episode that we are dealing with here. Uh, and this is what Ben uh, writes of Ethan Rom in the style of the Lost series Bible. You ready? Oh, yeah. A man of few words, but many secrets. Ethan has been a practicing surgeon for many years. This leads Ethan to bond quickly with Jack as they look to take care of the health needs of the camp together. Ethan uses his newfound bond with Jack to teach him the ways of a martial art Ethan had found that had himself learned from an old Japanese master. However, when Jack begins to suspect that Ethan is tending to Claire using medical equipment that could not possibly have been found aboard Oceanic 815, he begins to unravel Ethan's biggest secret of all, that he was not on the plane. Oh, I love that little Casablanca. No, no, Fantasy Island shout yes, out. That's uh, it. That's it. Call back to when uh when Sawyer called Walt Tattoo. Ah, oh, yes, indeed. Back in all the best indeed. daddies. Speaking yeah, of so another clear episode. Most of this doesn't track. Uh, <laughs> do, do you do you think though? I mean, obviously, uh I wonder what Ethan's story I again I guess true to the series Bible, he did not speak much to people, but I mean 
do you think uh, he would have had like an unintentional surgeon moment? Like if he was, you know, at the wreckage of Oceanic Flight 815 and like he's the one advising Boone, like, oh, that's not what you do with a tracheotomy. You know, like, is how can he avoid backseat surgeoning considering his own experience? Uh, probably by being a sociopath who doesn't give a shit about the survivors of Oceanic 815. Oh, uh, yeah. That might work. Maybe. Uh, that, I think that, that yeah. I think it's very much shown, even at this point, the little we know of Ethan, that Ethan does not have a heart. Uh, and he will not have a beating heart by the end of this episode. By the end of this episode. All right, so let's go into this summary of this episode. Of course, we do this with the assistance of eight sounds along the way. Uh, and the way this podcast started is not the first thing you hear from this episode, but it's pretty close. Uh, the episode begins with Charlie. He's waking up to a commotion, and Locke is bringing Claire back. Uh, he's calling for Jack, and there's questions about... Uh, how did they find her? Where was she when they found her? And Locke's like, I don't know. She just collapsed in my arms. And everybody is like standing around and following Locke and Claire to Jack deeper into the caves until Jack is finally like, hey, guys, could you, could you, get, could you, could you back it off? Could you back it off? The gawkers be gawking. Yes, the gawkers have made a, a return. They're like, oh, well, we moved this stuff down the, the beach. I guess we deserve some gawking. Hey, look, pregnant lady's back. Uh, I also do like Jack sort of resuscitation method i know that i think the wet the wet cloth is what ultimately wakes her up but he sort of like says like wake up now like it almost seems for a hot second that jack's taking a page out of libby's book and is trying like hypnotism to wake claire up yeah i think i would be very um not okay with like being woken up via wet cloth (laughs) like with like somebody's just like stroking a wet cloth against my face i mean i guess i understand like uh look jack's a doctor who am i to argue that that must uh bring you back from the brink but for me keep that off my face would you have very would you have a preference given full body chill i mean would you have a preference given like the dearth of uh, alarm clocks out there on the island maybe some shouting maybe charlie could sing a u.s song to wake you up uh man uh yeah i wonder what's a good alarm clock on the island probably just the sun you know (laughs) That's yeah, gonna do bring it. Sun in and have her make the big revelation <laughs> that she speaks English and Claire will wake uh, up in shock. Yeah, yeah. Or she has like something in her garden that is just like some some aroma that just uh, uh, really goes off in the morning. I no, don't think it, that you could really do that. But I think what she could do is if she's growing like a pepper in the garden, just like put it and like rub it on her gums or something. And then the oh, spiciness God. will just wake her up. Wow, that's good. That's good. Oh, that happened to me once. Uh, what? When I, well, when I was a summer camp, uh, when I was a kid at summer camp, my counselors came back one summer, uh, one night uh, when they would go out at night, and I woke up to a stinging sensation in my mouth, and I like sc- I screamed awake and lurched awake. My counselors had put wasabi in my mouth. Oh my god! Yeah. Did you immediately punish them? No, because they then fed me pizza, and I was like, ooh, pizza. <laughs> so you just had, like, a complete dog moment of, like, God, that sucks. Ooh, pizza. Yeah, yeah pretty much. It's like, ooh, this abuse was rewarded with pizza, so I'm happy to weather more. Uh, and, then, and then they allowed me to stay awake as they proceeded to put more wasabi in other people's mouths. I was like, oh, this is great. This is fun to watch. Oh, exactly. So uh, it's a nice little, like, psychological effect of, like, well, yeah, it's it not good. happening to me now, so now I can actually, like, yeah, uh, good. be part it of good. it. Yeah, it was, a, it was bad behavior ingrained in an 11-year-old, but uh, I look back on the memory fondly speaking of memories claire has none Uh, she she does not remember anything about what's happened to her on this island since landing uh she starts freaking out after she's been woken up with the wet cloth being like why are you rubbing my face with a wet cloth (laughs) why did you put a chili pepper in my mouth (laughs) what's the why is this wasabi here (laughs) uh it's imaginary wasabi claire you're dreaming it (laughs) um but yeah they wake her up uh and she's freaking out because she doesn't know 
who anybody is. She doesn't know where she is. Uh, this is very scary. And it's very effective, too, I think, uh, for me. We've already established that uh, Emily DeRaven, as far as the scream acting goes, uh, pretty high on the list. Uh, and uh, this is, you know, a very frightening circumstance to find yourself in on, you know, if you had like amnesia and you were suddenly on a, a stranded island, like that would be enough on its own. But imagine having that full package. Plus, not only are you pregnant, but you're like do any day. Uh, mm. And you remember that much. And you remember that you were on your way to Los Angeles. This is what Claire remembers. She says she doesn't remember Ethan. She doesn't remember any of that. The last thing she remembers is being on a plane from Sydney to Los Angeles. Yikes, that's horrifying. That's horrifying to have to wake up to those circumstances. I will also say, and this goes back to, uh, I guess, both the makeup team and Mr. Bon villain uh, in his cinematography, you see shadows under Claire's eyes. Uh, and I think it's just a great representation of, you know, the trauma that she has probably been through, not only in living on this island, but obviously we don't know at this point exactly what happened to her in this length of time. Uh, but, you know, it seemed like something definitely bad happened to the point where, you know, when Jack brings up this selective amnesia, which we could definitely get into it as a plot device, uh, but he does say that it might be triggered by something traumatic. And I mean, you don't want to assume the worst with what happened with Ethan. But like you said, for being literally dropped back into the middle of everything, Emily DeRaven does such a great job. And this entire scene, especially, uh, you know, that first that first little bit of time that uh, we played in the intro there. I want to bring in very early our friend Jim Fells with his musical analysis of this episode because the musical stings that were used as Claire was waking up and freaking out about the room of strangers in a strange land, uh, actually it was used in All the Best Daddies. And so it's a really interesting echo to you know everything that Claire's been through concerning the last time we heard it was when she had gone missing, when she was you know at the, at the most danger-filled part of her life. Right, right. Oh, that's great. That's really interesting. This is such a smart show. Uh, big shout out to Giacchino in this episode, too. The music in this episode is remarkable. Oh, yeah. I know we're, we're going to listen to some of that, right? And, and yeah, and we have a lot to get into yeah. in terms of, uh, again, don't want to spoil too much of Mr. Fell's video, but he has like four musical motifs that he goes over, which is a big comparison to last episode when it was a four minute video of like, hey, here's a little theme that comes in. Uh, so, I mean, Giacchino goes buck wild in this episode, and it's so much fun to listen to. Claire, uh, she gets the news like, your baby's fine. Everything's normal. We've been here for about a month. Uh, and she's like, if it's been almost a month, why hasn't anyone come to get us? And like, no one has a good response. To and that. then Michael's like, got to work on that raft. Yeah. Yeah. Got to be rafting. Uh, Jin and Sun are watching this from a distance. And yeah. I was very impressed by this scene. Um, Jin, Jin says to Sun, like, what's going on? Is she all right? And, and Jin's like expressing specific concern for Claire and the baby. And there's this very loaded look between Jin and Sun, where Sun says, I'm sure the baby is fine. Um, I'm trying to remember when we first catch wind of there being anything remotely involving um, uh, Jin and Sun wanting to have had a child, the fa let alone the fact that Sun, Sun is not pregnant yet. They get pregnant on the island. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that uh, this is already being brought in here, that, that loaded look... Call it a retcon and like you're looking back on a moment like this um, with with like 
kind of extra power knowing what you know from the future. Uh, this being the sole writing credit of Damon Lindelof, I want to choose to believe that this was something that was already on the mind. And if, if that's the case, very impressive. Um, but even still, I think just on its own, you could read this as Sun is uh, either touched or or moved in some capacity that Jin seems to care about one of the other survivors here. Um, but I, I had just never noticed this before, Mike, this detail that uh, Jin is already like, uh, you know, he's thinking about a baby because that's obviously something that would be very near and dear to him and son, knowing what they've gone through in their flashbacks, where as far as Jin knows, um, he believes that son is incapable of, of having right. children um, biologically. Um, little does he know that it's uh, that he's the one who is uh, who, who has the who biologically can't produce children until he gets uh, onto the island and has electromagnetism coursing through his. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> yeah, some uh, different parts than Walt, maybe when it comes to uh, manipulation of electromagnetism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we look back though to when we did House of the Rising Sun and we went, Jin's superpower is pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say if, uh, if, Hero, if Heroes was a basic cable show, <laughs> oh, I think God. maybe they would go in that direction. Maybe we'll oh, see uh, Watchmen go in that direction, right, depending right, on where right. Lindelof takes it. But yeah, if we, right. if we go back to House of the Rising Sun and the series Bible entrance uh, entry on Jin, it does mention son's infertility from that perspective the point where it was even in our beloved caps so you know we talk a lot about certain facets of those initial characterizations that eventually make their way onto the show proper so i do wonder if you know maybe the plot twist of oh we think it's some but it's actually Jin who's infertile maybe that wasn't necessarily on the board but you have to imagine this was something that still made the cut in terms of their characterization so maybe i'm doing the benefit of the doubt here but i'd personally like to believe that this was a reference to that to that moment for their relationship because I think it is incredibly powerful. There, yeah. There's a moment in Exodus that you know made me super emotional watching it, and I cannot wait to get to that because that's the benefit of this is that, you know watching back with hindsight and realizing things that may or may not be coincidentally linked up to other things. I like to believe this is the former that this is you know a, a correlation. Uh, or a causation, not a correlation, and, and that th this reaction is informed by their previous uh, history with being unable to conceive and how the closest thing to having a new infant life on the island uh, is, is of concern, and that is of concern to Jin, surprisingly. Um, all right, so Boone and Locke are hanging out as they want to do these days. Uh, and Boone is like very stir crazy and he's walking around and he's wondering what the hell happened. Locke, meanwhile, is kind of just like sitting there, very like, very great posture. Uh, he's just sort of just like kind of like staring off with, with great intention and meaning. And, and Boone's wondering, like, I wonder if Claire escaped. Locke says, You know as much as I do. Uh, and he says, like, She doesn't remember anything. Locke says, Apparently. And Boone's like, you think Ethan's still around? Locke says, I sure hope not. Uh, and what I love about this moment, it's quiet. Um, but it's, I, I can't repeat the Italian because I, I don't have it fresh in my mind. But he's doing what Michelangelo did, right? Yeah. He's working. He's working. He's sitting there. He's thinking. He's thinking about what just happened. An, an event of enormous magnitude has just occurred. Uh, and Locke doesn't want to act drastically until he's had time to really process it and think it through and here he is sitting there thinking it through as Boone is just like agitated and, and rearing to go um, I think that this is just like a really great sort of quiet moment of characterization for both of these characters yeah it's this is a really interesting episode for Locke because we talked about this how Locke is sort of off on his own and he's withholding information from the rest of the group but there are certain things that are being withheld from him 
namely the Halliburton case, which will uh, come into the know of later. But, you know, Locke in this episode is very much a man of patience, which to your point, we sort of know about from both his hunting motifs and the whole Michelangelo uh, idol idolization of it all. And that's really going to be disparate compared to Charlie, who is really just, for lack of a better term, shooting from the hip with everything, with his rationalization and ultimately with his action. To compare the way these two men approach this situation from different angles is so interesting because it says all we need to know about these characters and how they can look at a painting the same way and think completely different things and what needs to be done in it just based on who they are and how they've been raised. Um, so we go to Charlie and he's going to you know, sit down and talk to Claire. He's going to give her her journal back. Um, we're going to have a conversation between the two of them. Um, and, and Mike, normally I, I get a chance to listen to the sounds more closely before we get on the podcast. Unfortunately, was not able to this week. I know that we're going to bring in our first sound here. Anything you want to set up? Uh, basically, you know, spoiler alert, I, I want to bring in sounds that sort of bookmark uh, Charlie and Claire's relationship at the beginning and the end of this episode. Obviously, things are at an awkward place, especially from Charlie's perspective. He clearly has feelings for Claire. He would not have looked through her diary and be, become bloody scum last episode if he did not. Now she's back in his life. Bad news. She doesn't remember that you were in his life, much like the beloved film Fifty First Dates. He's going to have to pull an Adam Sandler here and try to reintroduce himself. And <laughs> here, here's how Charlie's going to try to do it initially. When he... Ethan, when he took you away, he took me too. The others came after us. They got me back. But you... You were gone. Who is he, Ethan? Ethan... Ethan's the bad guy. So we were together when Why did he leave you? Why don't we leave that lovely story for the morning? Bad enough for one day. How? Oh, I won't be sleeping. Oh. Lucky for me. Not much of a sleeper myself. Finally I'll have someone to stay up with. We're friends. Yeah. Yeah, we're friends. Josh, I think we just witnessed the lost version of the friend zone. <laughs> I thought that that had happened a couple of weeks earlier uh, <laughs> between these two characters. In fact, um, it's a really touching scene, uh, yeah. and and uh, you know, great great performances, of course. But this is where I want you know, this is a moment where I don't know. Uh, watching this episode today, and normally I, I watch these uh, much further in advance of of recording the podcast, but extenuating circumstances being what they are, I, I watched this really close to the time that we record uh, the podcast this week, which is a uh, Tuesday, November nineteenth. A momentous day in the life of Josh Wiggler. Uh, and uh, the music really spoke to me this time. And the music in this scene, um, this sort of this olive branch, uh, you know, this, I understand that you're uncomfortable. I understand that you're in pain. Uh, I understand that you're confused. 
um, and trust me as much as you want or, you know, and that, if that means not at all, that's fine. But if it, if it means uh, that I can be a friendly face for you in this moment of distress, I'm here for you. Um, just really beautiful. It's a, it's a really beautiful scene. And it's just, it's scored beautifully. And I think that that really helps with the emotion. Yeah, and you could feel the awkwardness there as well. I think Charlie tries to be his charming self. And we will speak about Charlie's charming self in a different capacity very soon uh, in terms of our sounds. But, you know, you could tell it's difficult for him to approach the situation. Obviously, Claire's in a very weird position where she's like, you know who I am, but I have no idea who you are. And he sort of is in a weird position of, of power with the knowledge that he has and is trying to fill in the blanks. I found the characterization of Ethan interesting. Obviously, you know, they say that he's the bad guy. It obviously makes sense from their perspective. But, uh, you know, my mind when it comes to giving someone, you know, an adjective or a role always goes back to that Sawyer, I'm a complex guy, sweetheart soundbite that we pull in the in the pilot about how loss has really proved how nobody is really one thing. How, depending on the perspective that you look at things, there, there are many facets to people and the different roles that they play. And so I think this is a really great underlining, obviously, of the role that Ethan plays uh, from the survivor's perspective before we find out, you know, a couple of seasons from now exactly what the other's perspective is in all this. And how Claire was supposed to be sort of like their saving grace to an epidemic that they've been undergoing. So I, I found that really interesting. And yeah, I mean, also, Dominic Monaghan and Emily DeRaven, even though they're in weird circumstances in the scene, their chemistry is just always fantastic. And fantastic. it's no, no different here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then we get to the flashback. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to the flashback. So here it is, right? So, so here we are in Homecoming, and it's a Charlie Pace episode. Uh, and what we're getting through the Charlie narrative uh, this episode, it's a lot about how... Uh, he he took advantage of a woman in the past uh, for his own selfish needs. Um, and now in the present, he's trying to desperately um, protect someone, a, a woman he cares about. And, and you get it juxtaposed in a way where it's stri- it strikes the viewer as if like this is some measure of redemption. You know, he's going to be slammed with some pretty harsh words by the end of the flashback portion of the episode. Uh, and you you wonder how that resonates with him. Um, on the island and the way that the the episode frames it you do get the sense that like he's thinking back to it like there's a moment coming up where where charlie and like claire are literally going to be sitting next to each other uh and it it seems like he is like actively thinking back to everything that's going on with lucy um this is not the best flashback that we get on lost uh i don't think uh i think that there are probably better ways of handling the flashback component to this episode Mm. um i think something that could have been really powerful and effective is what if what if we're flashing back? What if we're getting our first on-island flashback? What if we're getting our first on-island flashback to, to Charlie and Claire getting captured by Ethan? And you're yeah. getting to see that journey through the experience of, of Charlie. Or it would be harder to do from Claire because she doesn't remember anything. So you'd have to do it from Charlie, <laughs> It would just probably. be a black screen. <laughs> that would be tough. That would be tough. That would be very difficult. Um, but just imagine like the intensity and then like continuing to sell why Charlie is um, going to do what he does against Ethan. Ethan. Um, all of that being said, we're 15 hours into Lost at this point, right? We're, we're some, something like that at this point. Uh, it's, it's, it's early, early days. Flashbacks weren't even on the menu. Flashbacks are on the menu, boys! Like flashback, Flashbacks weren't even on the menu until uh, past the pilot when they realized that this is something we should be bringing into the language of the show. This should be part of the structure. Um, it's, it's early 
to be asking the show to be as creative as digging into its all already fairly lush island history right. uh, to, to bring as flashbacks. But in my head canon, Mike, this is a flashback that I think would have worked really, really well here. When I think about Homecoming and I think about why this is typically not an episode I rate that highly or remember that fondly, I often think that it's got like a, a dumb flashback that doesn't matter that much. I see the point of it. I see the point of it. I see the point of it as, as far as it relates to Charlie relating to Claire. Um, and I think... Dominic Monaghan, even though he acts deplorably in a lot of ways with Lucy, is just a very charming actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that saves it for me. Like, it's it's not it's not great. It's not great. But there is, like, there's going to be later on, there's going to be some physical comedy from him that I'm going to really appreciate <laughs> uh, that, I, that I never had appreciated before. And I actually appreciated today. Um, so, so that's where I'm coming at the flashback. With the, but we go back uh, to, to Oxford or we go back to England and Charlie's with Tommy. Tommy is in the band. Is that right? I don't remember. I don't know. Actually, I, this is. Uh, I, I think, the, he, I think this, he's just his friend. Like maybe you he. You know what? He Tommy. He went from being blef, uh, blind, deaf, and dumb. And he decided to get into heroin. That's yeah. the, that the natural response. Uh, Mike, how many Toms and Thomases and, and Brian's <laughs> are there on? Are there on Lost? Because we we had Thomas with Claire. We have Tommy with Charlie. We're going to have Tom with Kate. We're going to have Tom, Tom friendly, friendly yeah. coming up at the end of the season. So at least a bare minimum of four Toms in the first season of Lost. And I wonder how many beyond that. Josh, uh, I, I, I totally get what you're putting down here. Survivor Brian's versus Tom's will be our next <laughs> brand steal in preparation for season two. Oh my God. Just with the lost characters too. Sounds super fun. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, but it. it's, I, this is, I, I totally see your points. I agree that I think now looking back, knowing the, the creativity with which the show is going to approach flashbacks an on Island flashback would be awesome. And I think that a lot of the, a lot of the moral ambiguity that comes with Charlie's move here at the end, which we'll certainly get into with the others specifically, might have been a little more substantiated had we known exactly what they had gone through, aside from obviously seeing the final product, quote-unquote, of Charlie hanging from a tree. I think, unfortunately, uh, I could imagine the writer's room at this point is like, okay, uh, we sort of have an open end as to how to write each Lost episode, but it's going to have a flashback. Like, those are the goalposts for the writer's room in that first season, where it's essentially the Wild West, and they're trying to figure out how to essentially land a plane as they're building it. They're saying, okay, well, we'll have a flashback to them off the island. We know that's going to be the case. And I, I said it last week, but I'll say it again here. This might be the most extraneous flashback and the most forgotten flashback in Lost history. Yes, even some, something like Stranger in a Strange Land is remembered infamously for i guess just how unneeded it was but this is something i completely forgot about going into this episode and i would not be surprised honestly josh if a month from now i did not remember this again (laughs) outside of the the doofy copy scene which we'll get into but it just seems like it's so you know at least with whatever the case may be and i am really you know uh giving a, a a very light compliment to whatever the case may be like you could understand the characterization they were giving kate there here, it really does seem like they did this entire flashback sequence to have Lucy tell Charlie at the very end, like, you'll yeah. never learn how to take care of anybody. Yes. And yes. that's yes. it. Yes. So it's it's a, a long a long way to go for that punchline for sure. Exactly. So it, it's it's a, a long and I would say an improper use of resources, but considering the point they were at in season one and where they maybe were not necessarily 
coming up with these ideas to to reach out of their comfort zone at the moment. They're trying to build a freaking comfort zone at this point. I can understand at least uh, their willingness to stick to the flashback format, even though it turns out with less than ideal results. Yeah, charitably, I would say, um, you know, it it's helping to inform... Uh, you know, Charlie is somebody who's fairly hot-headed and impulsive and doesn't make great decisions, and he certainly makes a questionable decision on the island in this episode. Mm-hmm. So charitably, it helps inform that. And then the other charitable thing is, like, there's not a ton of flashback in this episode. There's there's definitely, like, you know, there's there's enough flashback that, like, you're kind of like, all right, let's go, let's go, come on, let's get back to <laughs> hey, the Charlie, island. Charlie, take off your little newsboy cap and, like, let's get back to the island. You know, but the, but the island stuff is really, really compelling, and it makes you want to go back to the island and really get through the flashback. So this is one of those first episodes that, that you're getting through, at least for me, where I'm like, all right, I really don't need to see what's going on here. Um, but, but again, charitably, at least, I think relatively minimal amount of time spent on the flashback. So I'm happy about that. Um, but let's go with Charlie and Tommy to this bar. And Tommy is a real scoundrel uh, where Tommy has been scoping out Lucy Heatherton, uh, the son of a very rich guy, Francis Price Heatherton. He's bloody loaded. Uh, and I guess they're like, they're going to, they're going to infiltrate her life. And the, the, the plan is for Charlie to get into her home and steal something of value so they can, uh, repurpose the thing of value for their, for their bloody drugs. Wait, Josh. Is Tommy Charlie's Mr. Robot? <laughs> oh, my God. Is Tommy the smoke monster? Wait a minute. That could what? be the case. <laughs> no way. Could oh you my. just imagine, like, it cuts to now Charlie just sitting at the bar, just, like, talking to himself? Oh, uh, maybe. I would love that. That sounds great. All right. Well, let's let's go to Charlie at the bar. I know that you pulled us out from this, uh, for this episode. Mike. Absolutely. And look, we don't get any drive shaft in this episode, because obviously they are broken up at this point, as Charlie will tearfully discuss. But... Drive shaft still looms in the background as tr- we see Charlie in action as he starts to put the moves on Lucy and her gal pals at the bar. Oh, seriously, ladies, I demand you stop buying me more drinks. I'm a man of high moral standing. Your obvious plan to take me home and ravage me will not work. Source of sirens. I believe in monogamy. Will not be shared like a common curry. Are we that obvious? Dreadfully. Call yourself ladies, Jane Austen would be ashamed. Fun fact, uh, I did this at our college bar. I, I put on a song on the jukebox that I wrote called, I am Mr. Muhlenberg. <laughs> I just sort of went over there and made my pitch. Oh, Mr. Muhlenberg. Oh Mr. Muhlenberg to you, Josh. Mr. <laughs> that's Moom Muhlenberg is the full name. <laughs> yeah, if I ever want to go into witness protection, that's my new name. I probably just spoiled it, revealing uh, my name, but I think no. I settled on it. Oh, my God. Yeah. For anyone who meets a Moom Muhlenberg <laughs> in the future, please let us know immediately uh, because I'll have a hard time believing Moom Muhlenberg <laughs> exists. All right. Okay. Back on the island, Mr. Muhlenberg, uh, there's a gathering of the power squad and everyone's kind of like trying to diagnose why Claire is back in the state that she is back and why now. And Saeed is, uh, he's really suspicious. He suspects that, you know, he says, Ethan's intelligent. Maybe he sent Claire back to us. Mm. Uh, and even Jack's like, Saeed, come on, that's a stretch. <laughs> I, I, This is an interesting island think tank, right? And it seems like our three-headed dragon here is Locke, Jack and Saeed. I'm happy that Locke sort of worked his way in. I guess when Jack was gone doing stuff, Locke did sort of 
help out with things. But yeah, it's an interesting trio of people to really take the Ethan situation head on. Yeah, well, he's uh, he's the hunter, you know, he's in charge of these types of uh, the, the tracking and gathering uh, operations. But Kate's a tracker, um, too. She is as well. And, and Jack is not fantastic with Kate. Um, but Charlie is like really upset with the way that they're talking about uh, about Claire. And he says, you boys keep talking. I'm going to go talk to Claire. I get the sense she might still be upset. I always loved how he said upset. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, something like that. I, I think that Charlie is sort of, again, he, he's a man of action in this case, and that he feels like something immediate needs to be done. And I, I mean, you could understand his perspective, right? Nobody else in this camp besides him and Claire have been directly attacked by Ethan, I guess, unless you count Jack getting Farkas uh, in All the Best Daddies. But, you know, Charlie was supposed to die. Who knows what happened to Claire as at Ethan's hands? And so he feels a personal connection to need to either get vengeance or just take action, whereas these guys are a lot more methodical. And like you said, Charlie's hot-headedness gets the best of him here, and really will later on, but you can really see the seeds of it now where he just frustratingly is going to go to Jin here and just sort of monologue to him, purposely knowing that he doesn't know uh, English to just sort of vent about how nobody feels like they're giving this situation the time of day that it deserves. Yeah, and to quote the great Mr. Muhlenberg himself, he says, Anyang. Uh, to, to Jin. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then it turns out that Jin, we get the flashback of Jin, that he was a child of Lucille Bluth, and yeah, then betrayed he's in the her. He's in the wall. Uh, but he's talking about how, like, your life out here must be so much better than mine. Like, you don't have to worry about the tree-shaking behemoths, the French transmissions. Uh, and all the while that Charlie's talking, uh, you hear... You're like a swinging in the distance. Yeah, like it's, a, a it's, a, it's a weird noise that you think at first it's just like, okay, I guess that's some sort of bug. But you assume, like, is Ethan throwing some sort of, like, rock in a sling and that's him swinging the rock around to get momentum? Yeah, you see you see the others use slingshots in um, the future. Or I don't even know or if I think they, they, use, they use bolos at one point. I know that. It, is that what it is? Like, I, I don't know if this is a slingshot, but you see, you're going to see in three minutes, uh, not like three minutes from now. You're gonna gonna see say. The, the, ep- the episode literally called Three Minutes uh, in season two. You'll see um, MC Ganey as Tom Friendly swinging the thing. And I'll never forget it because I always thought that he looked very awkward swinging this thing. <laughs> yeah. I love MC Ganey. Well, that's not going to be his, that's not gonna be his challenge in Survivor Tom's versus Brian's. I'll tell you no, that. No, I don't think so. I think that he's going to be sitting that one out. Uh, but yeah, so he, he, he I guess, is using so, I don't know if somebody has an idea of what the weapon is would love to know please write in down the hatchet pusher recaps.com but whatever it is he's swinging something fierce and he he rocks Jin in the head and then Ethan emerges and we get this scene <laughs> I want her back. What? I, I want you to bring her back. What did you do to her? What did you do? You bring her here. If you don't, I'm going to kill one of them. And then if you don't bring her back before sundown tomorrow, I'll kill another, and another, and another. One every day. And Charlie, 
I'll kill you last. So you're talking about... Uh, hey, Charlie, remember when I told you I'd kill you last? I lied. I lied. As he drops Charlie off the Mount Rushmore or whatever it was. <laughs> uh, you're talking about actor affectations, though. I can't get over the way uh, William Mother says back. He's yeah. like, I want you to bring her back. It's, again, it's, it's a <laughs> yeah. little bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger-esque. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, Ethan kind of has a Terminator quality to him, so it works. Definitely yeah. works. Yeah. This is this is such a chilling scene. Ethan is terrifying. Uh, Ethan, Ethan is so creepy and terrifying and horrifying. Well, especially the way that he looks now. You know, even when he fought Jack and he, like and, scratched and he, up. Yeah, he made that, uh, you know, that, that threat to Jack, which is actually very similar to the one he gave Charlie of, you know, if you come back, I'll kill them. Uh, but he has the four scratches on his cheek. His shirt, which was previously this like bright yellow as he blended it with the rest of the survivors, is faded and dirty. It looks like he has just been in a completely different mindset since Claire, assumingly, or if Saeed's to be believed, uh, purposely escaped from him. And he's a man on a mission. And of course, he gives just that great Ethan blank face stare and just a furrowed brow of not concern, but danger across his face. And you're talking about the cinematography of Mr. Bond villain. Uh, I love, I love the shot of Charlie's feet next to the tree because Ethan decides to uh, remind Charlie a bit of the power that he has. And decides yeah, he grabs to, him by the throat. That's yeah, so triggering and lifts him up. And you get this shot of Charlie's feet off the ground next to a tree, which we don't even yeah. need the literal flash to remember when we saw that only, you know, a month or so ago. And, I just love that reminder from both uh, a character-based perspective and for the audience as well. Remember, this has been a little while since we've seen Ethan do this. He's a, It's a big reminder as to like what he can do and that his threat should not be taken lightly. It is absolutely terrifying. You know, this is the last we're going to see him for quite some time. This is certainly the biggest spotlight we are going to shine on him. And I would say if this is a curtain call for the character of Ethan, mission accomplished in terms of getting across the, the vibe. To Charlie's point, he seems like the bad guy here. Yeah, or Mission Impossible because he was in it and his cousin is the star of the franchise. Yeah, but he did not come back to the franchise. No, he did not. Um, Charlie is going to come back to to Locke and Jack and tell him what just happened. <laughs> to Jock. <laughs> exactly. He's going to come back to Jock. <laughs> uh, yeah, for shipping Jack and Locke. That works Oh, for me. no. Uh, purple hair and all that. Uh, but there, he's going to come to them and he's going to say, like, uh, what, what just happened with Ethan and how Ethan wants them to bring Claire into the jungle or he's going to kill somebody every day. Uh, he's going to kill me last. And so it's going to be terrible. Um, and Jack, like, really wants to act immediately. Uh, and Locke has a line that I, that I love when he's, like, reminding them of why that's a bad idea. <laughs> Uh, I just love how he phrases this. He bested you physically, and he hung you from a tree. I just think it's a... <laughs> I just love... He bested you physically. It's just a very, like, matter-of-fact, descriptive way of uh, of summarizing what happened when Jack last met Ethan. Yeah, this is... Uh, Locke showing a bit of old man signs this episode between using that sort of vernacular, and the fact that I'm pretty sure he never says the word Jack this episode. Like, a couple mm. times it could be like, and the doctor, or... I oh, love how he... I, oh, oh, doctor. God. Do not get me started. I love when, when Locke calls him doctor. Doctor. Oh, I love it so much. I mean, I it's, it. I, and I love Dr. it, especially Jack. comparing the formality to the way Sawyer just like cheekily refers to him as Doc. Like, it just feels like there's weighted differences in the relationships there. 
Yeah. So there's a, you know, it's, it's a friendly conflict of ideas. Like it's certainly, it hasn't gotten to the heaviest places that it's eventually going to go between Jack and Locke, but they disagree about how to do this. Uh, Jack wants to bring everybody into the caves. He wants everybody to, to be in a safe spot. And Locke basically says that could be their plan that they just want us like all penned into one area and they'll, they'll just take us all out in one fell swoop. So Jack's like, all right, Mr. Locke, then what's your plan? He doesn't say it like that. I know some people don't like it when we get into like sneering Jack voice. Uh, but, I can't but, help but it. some people do. So I yeah, mean, it's really like do. a wash. <laughs> Just got to follow your heart on this one. Uh, but yeah, so he's like, all right, so Locke, what's your plan? And so we, we don't see it immediately, but we're going to see in a little while uh, exactly what Locke has in mind. It's going to involve uh, putting some people on guard duty that maybe shouldn't have been put on guard duty. <laughs> yeah, um, but make sure everyone but it's takes a good, It's a good plan. It's a decent plan. He's got a good plan. Uh, it's just, he, there's, there's a couple of things he didn't account for, and you can't really blame him. Uh, they're, not, they're not aware of the full extent of the capabilities of the others at this point. Yeah, anyway. the, the thing that I actually think this episode does well is I think the tension and the paranoia of the survivors is really interesting to watch because at the time... We were there along for the ride with them, right? We had no idea, you know, Ethan might be a quote-unquote other, but what does that mean? What did he do with Claire? Could there be more of them? He's able to throw rocks, but does he have possession of guns? And so I like sort of being in the same boat or raft as the survivors here and really thinking through what's the best plan. And I love Locke's idea of like, no, 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 they might be hurting us into the caves, you know, and really sort of just talking through ideas and refuting them when we also know in hindsight sort of like, how the others are so much more well-equipped and more capable than the survivors are, uh, which also really is striking compared to the way Ethan approaches this situation, which is in this episode, I didn't mention it in the previous Ethan scene, but Ethan is far from cautious in this episode. And it, it's so interesting if you look at his sort of character journey and the fact that, you know, he felt like he was going to get discovered. And so he decided to kidnap Claire. He, he did not take orders from the others from that perspective. So this is Ethan entirely improvising and so he is much much sloppier than we saw in the first 10 episodes and as uh, you know then you know and also from the orders that ben linus usually gives uh so it's, it's sort of interesting knowing the way the others function now to watch the castaways fruitlessly strategize against them but then luck out due to the fact that the one rogue agent they're dealing with just is not great at formulating these plans in the moment yes you say fruitless but uh kate's gonna throw jack some fruit a little while from now so uh, it's not entirely accurate. Ironically enough, not a jackfruit. Yes. Uh, yeah, that would be delicious. Uh, sons with Jin. Jin was knocked out. Uh, whatever empathy he had for the survivors is gone. <laughs> He's like, I only got knocked out because of whatever the hell they did. This sucks. This is so stupid. This is so lame. We were making such progress, Jin. And, there were, and it's a fun double entendre because, I mean, he was also attacked literally by what the others have done and that another right, hit him right. with a rock. Right, 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 right. And there's there's more of that, right? Where where Claire and Charlie are going to talk, and Claire's talking about how the others are avoiding me. And it's like, no, the others want you back. The, yeah. <laughs> the others are looking for you. Yeah, this it's, is essentially the survivors like... Of she had a game one five. It's who's they're, on they're, first. This episode, yeah, exactly. This episode is just one big Laurel and Hardy bit just waiting to happen If you once you've seen season three of Lost. Who's on fourth? What's on eighth? Uh, <laughs> oh, very odd baseball being 15. played on the island. <laughs> yeah, listen, maybe it's the we're talking about uh, the the par on the golf course. Uh, but yeah, so Claire is like confiding in Charlie that like uh, she still just does not feel great, and she feels like there's something brimming uh, out there, and she's just like being given the silent treatment. And Charlie's like, nope, 
no, everything's good. Everything's fine. Everything's great. And honestly, uh, you know, things uh, that you've missed out on, it's it's actually, we've, we've been living a pretty good life here. There's a golf course. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and he, but he also does this thing that doesn't help his case. And I know it's segueing into a flashback, but where he says, everything's okay. And then he immediately just stares off into space and goes right. into the flashback land. And so it's not like, get granted, Claire doesn't really know you, but it's not a great body language of like, no, 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 everything's great. Everything's fine. Dead face and stare off. It's right. really showing that it's not okay. Right. It's not an elegant transition into the flashback. It's a little ham fist Ed, as Antonio Mazzaro would like to say. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm not going to be too mad at it because I think that this episode features some of the best transitions of the entire series. And we'll talk about them mm. when we get to them. Um, but the we, we get into a flashback and Lucy has brought Charlie home. And Charlie says, if you wanted to invite me back for six, don't say T, say six. Uh, and it's a little weird. Yeah, it seems like Charlie had watched some like uh, DVD episodes of Family Guy and was like, I love that guy, Quagmire. I should pull mm. his moves off. Giggity gee. Uh, <laughs> that should be my next song. Yeah, Giggity Gee would be a great comeback album for Drive Shaft. Uh, and so like, she's like telling him about his, her dad and now he's got a paper company that he's about to buy and... Uh, and, you know, she, she's uh, showing him the house and Charlie's looking around and there's, uh, I don't know what this Winston Churchill thing is. Yeah. I, if I, if I, if, if you'll forgive me, I didn't pay such close attention that I knew at the Winston Churchill thing. I mean, uh, he was like a, a blast. I mean, yeah, he was, uh, he was known to be a heavy drinker. He had several notable quotes about it. And also if you've watched the series of the crown, you'll, you'll be able to see that firsthand. And I believe, I guess, uh, Francis is a bit of just, uh, an antique hunter. And so Charlie's playing a bit of an antiques roadshow and is sort of asking about the value of the flask. And, you know, Charlie has been given the mission by his Mr. Robot to, to infiltrate and, and grab something of value so he could get more smack. And this smacked him in the face, it appears. And yeah. this, uh, despite, I guess, the lavishness of the house in general, this is going to be his one set target for the foreseeable future. Yeah, so Lucy invites Charlie to stick around for dinner with her, her, uh, her best daddy. Uh, so Charlie is going to have dinner with Daddy at some point in the not terribly distant future. Uh, first, we go back to the island, and here is the aforementioned uh, fruit snack between Jack and Kate. Uh, a stop and snack uh, as the two of them sit down, and Kate's like, yeah, so Locke told us what happened uh, uh, with Ethan and Charlie, and that's very scary. Hey, by the way, you know how you have four nine millimeters? Don't you think we want to use those? And honestly, Mike, Mr. Muhlenberg... I love Jack in this moment where he's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, I'm not just going to hand out guns to people willy-nilly. Uh, the chances of us shooting each other are better than shooting him. I'm not putting guns in untrained hands. Yeah, the guns are not going to Willie or Nelly, Scott, nor Steve. I mean, he, no. brings, he brings up a great point because it gets validated very much down the line where he says, hey, uh, you know, people who have guns in the middle of the jungle are going to get scared and they're going to shoot somebody. Fast forward to Shannon's death yeah, when that exact right. same thing happens. Exactly. That's going to happen. She's going to, like, shoot Locke kind of in the head. Uh, Charlie's going to shoot Ethan here. And these are all, like, panic moves, right? Like, these are all, like, brought out, like, very emotionally and, and, and out of panic. Uh, so Jack is uh, Jack has almost never been more on point to me than he is in this moment. Where he's like, I'm not just going to do that. No. I mean, he, he eventually gets, like, guided into, like, putting them in the hands of people who, who you know, you can quibble with, a, with, with one or two choices, <laughs> maybe literally one choice, uh, which I think we'll quibble with in terms of who ends up with the guns uh maybe two choices i don't know the jack uh, i don't know i mean jack to be fair if that one choice also had another gun does that make it a, a two choices or one 
I guess that's true. I guess that's true. I guess Sawyer was getting a gun no matter what. Um, but I, I love his position on the thing here. Uh, Locke is going to be booby trapping Kevin McAllister style. He's, uh, he's this, arming this is up. my jungle. <laughs> this is my island. I have to defend it. <laughs> uh, where they've got like these like trip wires like filled with like recycling, like crushed cola cans <laughs> and stuff. Probably the like wrappers from the chocolate that you and I uh, hoarded yep. as uh, Billy Wallace and Rodney Sesto back in the RPG. Uh, I really wish that there was like the the Home Alone music montage playing here, like the Christmas music in the background yeah. as as you see Locke tying everything together. I wish they had put on they had a record player from the hatch so they could put on some like general sound. They could play the the Marvin Candle orientation thing so that the others mm-hmm. would get scared that Marvin Candle yeah. was threatening them. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun if they could like wire something to the to the exercise bike. Uh, they could use the blender. Uh, that there's a lot in the hatch that would be really helpful for this operation, yeah. but they've got what they've got and they're going to use what they've got. Uh, and I guess what they're going to use includes Boone, who's going <laughs> to volunteer for sentry duty. Uh, and Boone is really outmatched here. Apparently uh, Boone gets very tired. I know he's just, listen, he's a little boy. He's a little, he's a little boy. He's, he's a little guy. I mean, sweet. I don't know. I mean, Locke has been putting him to work with the hatch though. Locke does stick up for him now. You know, Saeed skeptic Saeed is really, you know, heavily, underline this episode when he's like oh, i don't know about boone here but Locke, you know puts in a reference for him and says i think boone's gonna make a great night guard turns out he yeah. might need his night guard because we'll talk about him falling asleep soon yeah boone has been uh the squire to lock the night as it were <laughs> yeah so. but he ain't no podrick Payne. no he truly is not um all right so they say oh, oh yeah boone yeah for sure we're counting on you boone well you might be able to says. count to five because that's all uh, he's good for I love that when Boone's like, I want to take a shift. And Locke literally says, absolutely. We're counting on you, Boone. <laughs> I just think it's so funny. Um, all right. So let's talk about the transitions. So there's a couple of these shots throughout the episode. And this is why I want to call out Michael Bonfill and, and Kevin Hooks directing this episode. You don't really get this very often where it's like it's building this tension where you know that something like there is a deadline here. Um, Lost ends up becoming uh, in many ways a deadline driven show with, with many deadline driven episodes with a literal ticking clock getting introduced in the second season um but here we know it from ethan that at least the threat exists that ethan wants claire tonight and if he does not get her tonight then one of you dies tonight that is going to happen every single night until you get claire to me so they're preparing for it you know like for the first time ever the survivors of Oceanic 815 have some intelligence on what to expect. It's not like a random monster attack. Mm. This time, like, they, they know who's coming and when, uh, to some degree, at least. And so they, they amp up that tension with, you see this beautiful shot of the ocean that's transitioning us from, like, late afternoon into evening. And it's gorgeous. It's just beautifully shot. It's just another it's another way in which Hawaii is such a terrific character on this show um and just such a brilliant way of conveying like the intensity of the emotion of what's going on here uh and just like the escalation of stakes. I just think it's it's really really excellently done. Yeah, and we had this is not the montage yet, right, of them uh staying out or not cuz yeah, I mean between that there's a lot of fades in this episode, which made me realize yes, that we exactly. we very, very, very rarely get fades on Lost. It's it almost out. always stark cuts, and so yeah, I'm we, a- we rarely get faded on this uh, on this show. Yeah, until we get some nice um, McCutcheon in our bellies. But yeah, it's a uh, it, it's a really unique perspective, especially you know we've seen the weird slow mo shots that have been used even to the point of very recently on Lost, but this feels different 
but good as opposed to that with with the use of and obviously like this is more of a passage of time than i think lost usually shows in an episode usually they really only show like a day or a couple of days but if we're talking about ramping up the paranoia and, and the uh the anticipation of waiting for this time to come again making a game of thrones comparison it's a good comparison to episode two of the final season uh and i mean maybe in another world we would have if they wanted to really extend the action of loss they would have just done just an entire episode of these guys getting ready for ethan to come only for him to ambush them in the night when they least suspect it but in terms of building mood at the moment it really does set the tone that this is a unique scenario for the survivors it's cool it's cool i'd forgotten about this aspect of homecoming and it's really really cool uh you know in, in going back and watching the episode i really greatly enjoyed that piece of it um that night uh, Charlie and Jack are talking, and Jack's like, "Don't worry, we got this. Everything's gonna be fine. Claire's gonna be okay." Uh, we flash back. We go. We go to dinner with Daddy, uh, Lucy's dad, uh, and Lucy's dad, who's apparently very wealthy and, and 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 an important person, says Charlie is the most impressive person they've ever had dinner with. Oh my! They must God. not be food people. Yeah, what they must like really like to keep this like it's very very tight or very tight. or it's, Lucy's it's, really into like gutter snipes or something. Uh, and I will yeah. also say Francis is played by uh, an actor by the name of Jim. Piddick, who I know as someone who has uh, very recently earlier this year dove into the vast canon of one Christopher Guest. Uh, he first appeared in his movie starting in Best in Show and has pretty much imp- uh, appeared in every installment since in the Christopher Guest canon, both on and off screen. He's uh, probably best well known in that as the co-host of the dog show uh, with Fred Willard's just completely off the wall character uh and he makes a nice welcome appearance here too and he is authentically british which we cannot save all the actors in this episode how much of a twist would it have been if he had shown up on the island for uh for the best in show contest on island that uh vincent wins by default yeah i was gonna say uh no bopo the dog to compete with so i think it's not an, it's, not a, it's a walk away literally for vincent <laughs> yeah for sure uh all right so like they're having dinner and charlie is like very like wah 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 drive shafts on hiatus i don't think we're gonna be back beep beep boo i, w- I um, will then- say this might be one of the more interesting parts of the flashback i know you're boop boop booing through it but to see at least Charlie sort of acknowledged because it also feels like another reason why I'm not a big fan of this flashback is it feels again if we're talking about extraneous like there's not much new information here about Charlie's state of mind that we don't see in the pilot flashback of just the mood that Charlie's in like we already knew how strung out he was but I will say what this one moment does do is have him Charlie like almost break down when talking about drive shaft breaking down Uh, and so I'm happy we at least explored that a little bit you know we had heard about it, and we saw him talk with Liam and them say that the band was never getting back together. But this is an opportunity for him to at least emotionally reconcile it. And it made me wish that we had more of this in the episode, but no, it is literally a blip on the radar to the point that, you know, you understandably were yada yada through the scene. Yeah, so he goes to Tommy, he's like, yeah, so I'm going to sell photocopiers now. And Tommy's like, what? Seriously? Yeah. That's not the plan? Yeah, he calls Lucy a moose. Yeah, not cool. Yeah, uncool. his name is not Moosey, Tommy. Tommy's canceled. Tommy's canceled. Uh, Charlie's like, look, Drive Shaft's not coming back together. We got, I got to think about my future. I got to get into the photocopier game. And Tommy's like, cool. Tell me how your future's going on Monday when you've gone through a weekend without a fix. Mm. Uh, it's just got to turn out that Monday doesn't go so great. No, not, not, listen, Garfield has a reason to hate Mondays, and so does Charlie Pace after this. So this is so this is only our third flashback segment of the episode. I'm, I'm trying to keep track of that here uh, as we're, as we're right. going. Right, I, I guess we, there, there are sort of like conjoined 
flashback scenes where like if you count I'll like, count it if it's if it's in a movement right? right like if it's in if it's in one sequence basically like if we haven't gone back to the island I'm counting it as a movement I'm counting it as one movement of the flashback piece and this is the end of the third movement of the flashback uh, for this episode so so far like not terribly intrusive um all right island time let's go back to the island everyone's at their stations you, you see like a little bit of everybody there's these it's a it's a cool montage of just like where everybody's set up lock and yeah lock, lock's pulling like a negan swinging around a stick i mean i know i referenced home alone uh maybe the more apt thing to have brought up here considering it's a uh, place in the down the hatch lexicon at least is it's like they're getting ready for the predator yeah right like it's like <laughs> it's like they're literally like schwarzenegger at the end of predator caking themselves in in mud getting ready to take on this uh this heat-seeking alien uh in the form of, of ethan rom and boone's gonna be the red shirt who gets eviscerated by the predator with his laser his shoulder mounted laser cannon and his his crazy disc things that he throws around uh but instead it's just vincent the dog that trips the alarm uh but you're in boone's head for a lot of this and it, it's fairly effective except for the fact that there's a commercial break in between which is a little less effective yeah so i mean obviously boone what the hell are you doing even if you're like you we all know when we're falling asleep you know like in the moment if you're like sleeping standing up or you're sleeping sitting down we've all felt exhaustion and he obviously should have just like tagged someone out you know i'm sure there was a bevy of people who would have been fine. I know that Locke was trying to inform like a close circle of confidants in what's going on, but I feel like some people probably would have noticed the fires being lit and the guys wanting to weaponize themselves. So I think, you know, tagging like Michael, where's Michael been in this episode? I'm sure Michael would be willing to do it. Tag Jin in after he, you know, heals from that rock wound. There were so many people that, but again, I guess it goes back to this characteristic of Boone that we've really focused on, which is like his just, never-ending want to volunteer for things and so maybe he just felt like it would embarrass himself if he said no i'm too tired i'm gonna turn in for the night but it listen he got lucky it was vincent i'll just leave it at that i'm tired this dog i'm sweeping. i need my I need my sister to come on so i can kiss her and wake me up yeah, i need my this, i need sweeping beauty yeah this, this bio is warm it's making me drowsy <laughs> uh but but boone falls asleep he wakes up when the alarm gets tripped and it's vincent uh, so it's just Vince. It's just the dog. Dog's running amok right now. Dog's out of control, right? Like they still, because Vincent ran away. And so Vincent's just doing his thing where sometimes Vincent goes rogue. Yeah. He's just, you know, Vincent going to do what Vincent wants to do. Vince is he's the still, ultimate free doesn't agent. doesn't matter if he's behaving poorly. He's still the best dog on the island. He's the ultimate free agent here in that he's just sort of like, <laughs> he's, uh, I guess he's like true neutral if we're talking about this, this uh-huh. <laughs> on the, the, the schism of things. Uh, but yeah, uh-huh. I mean, also, I mean, I guess did Locke's whistle work? Was Vincent just sort of latently drawn back, or did he just happen to be like, all right, I'm done, you know, lolling Oh, wow, yeah, island. okay, new theory, Locke was testing Boone, and he, like, called Vincent to, to wake Boone up. He's like, you failed, Boone, <laughs> we were counting on you. <laughs> exactly, now get in that plane for no reason. Now take the dog for a walk and clean up his poop, you're on poop patrol. But now you, and then I'm gonna put the poop in a paste, and you must eat the poop, and have another yeah. crazy dream. Oh, my God. I don't want to think about what those dreams would entail. Uh, there's a scream out on the beach. Somebody is dead. Uh, everybody goes out there. Uh, and uh, Locke looks out at the ocean. Uh, and, and Kate and Hurley are talking. Uh, and they, they determined that uh, Ethan came by water. Uh, they had land covered, but they did not have sea and air covered. So uh, the G.I. Joes would be disappointed in the Losties here. They just didn't... And quite. What are they gonna do? They think. How do they know that Ethan's got scuba gear? Yeah, you know exactly. No, I do not blame people here. Like 
you have a certain amount of assumptions. Ethan has only been traveling on land. You can't really think. And even to this point, like, we're still not really sure how he got around them. We know that the others have naval capacities, as we'll see in Exodus, but they can't naturally assume in that moment every single possibility of where these others can come from. They think they're primarily jungle-dwelling people. And so they think, okay, let's guard all the places of the jungle. It just happened that poor Scott was, uh, I don't know if he was going out for a midnight swim or sleeping by the beach or something, didn't take Jack's uh, hint to move towards the caves, and he unfortunately ends up as the warning sign here. Um, yeah, yeah, he does. Uh, so what are you going to do? Like, the fact that, like, they had everything on such lockdown that Ethan had to scuba dive in. And so, like, now also the thing is, like, they had, they had the situation on such lockdown that now they know they need to patrol the, the, the ocean as well, which makes me feel like, did they need to do this next part of the plan right away? Or could they have waited another night and also got, done guard duty at the ocean? Uh, like, what's, what's, what's Ethan going to do now? Like, hang glide yeah, into the island? Parachute in. He'll call <laughs> Naomi, and he's like, hey, can you fly me in? How does, he, how does he, like, you know, he drops in, but how does he get away? Like, drops in, lands on somebody, kills them on impact, and just beelines it? That's only going to work the once. I mean, I guess the question is, you know, if, like, obviously, they, I think they use a lot of manpower covering the jungle. Do they feel like they could use more people on the ocean? And if so, like... I'm assuming there's much more shoreline to cover than there is the direct encircling around the cave. So maybe they just felt like they were short-stabbed. And like I said, they're paranoid and they're desperate. So they're not exactly thinking terribly clearly, much to Locke's chagrin, especially since now Ethan's threat has been validated. He told them, I will kill someone if you do not return her to me. They did not bring her back. And so someone is dead. And so someone is dead. And that someone is Scott with a broken neck broken arms all of his fingers are broken yeah i wonder wonder which order that happened in so like ethan like comes up behind scott snaps his neck kills him and then like because he has to be dead other but before the arms and the fingers are broken otherwise everybody hears it yeah yeah, because you hear scott would scream that would make sense so but so so he kills him and then goes to the extremes of breaking this guy's arms and every single figure. Like, I know that he's a surgeon, so he's got surgical precision, so he probably knows how to do this relatively quickly. Uh, but yikes. Ethan, you psycho. I think you got the guy. <laughs> well, I wonder if maybe, I don't know, maybe he thought Scott was a popular hand model and wanted to take it out on him. <laughs> oh, wow! I, I mean, yeah, just taking that away from him, even in, uh, in you know, the great beyond. Exactly. Well, but Ethan, we also know, is very angry. And as I said before, is not thinking completely logically, even though he does figure out to sneak in from the water. So maybe it's just like he kills someone, reminds him how furious he is that she had that Claire escaped from him. And he just like takes out his anger on him. Tyrell Wellick style. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's. Uh, <laughs> I would say we should eulogize Scott, but uh, Hurley's going to take care of that for us in this next scene, which I believe you. Uh, <laughs> this was one of the sounds you wanted to pull for this episode. Yeah. Good, good choice. Yeah, this is a good choice. Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to have Scott's funeral in there, but there is a, a little exchange from Sawyer and Hurley directly beforehand. That listen, this is a key part of Scott's character, so I felt like it would be a, a misservice by us if we did not acknowledge it. Here we go. So Steve drew the short straw. Dude, that was Scott.
Scott Jackson worked for an internet company in Santa Cruz. He won a sales prize. Two-week Australian vacation, all expenses paid. He was a good guy. Sorry I kept calling you Steve, man. Um, amen, I guess. I, amen. I don't know how to end these. bit of levity i mean we'll get we'll get some levity down the line but like a, a pretty a pretty fun little comedic moment in the it's middle great. here with hurley well it's what, what's great about it is like that scene really captures why lost is so great yeah right like because like a man has died horribly <laughs> a man was brutally murdered and uh the music conveys the sense of loss to the community but the performance of jorge garcia and the writing of hurley's eulogy is just so funny and true to character uh and like helps ease some tension there and they they manage to like both like um turn turn scott into like someone who you're mourning but also he's still part of the scott and steve joke yeah uh that's a very tight <laughs> a very, very uh you know difficult thing to, to to walk that line and i think that they do it really effectively it's very very funny I'm, and and sad obviously but more funny than sad yeah i mean it's it's pretty dark uh it's, it's very dark it's it's it's, a, it's a, a straight dose of like dark comedy yeah but i absolutely love it uh and what i love about it as well is like literally gallows humor yeah but compare Hurley's eulogy to Claire's eulogy. I bet you at that point, Hurley was, you know, yet another reason why Claire should have her memory back is because she was so sweet by going through, you know, the the manifest and I guess all these personal belongings for poor Scott. And Hurley just sort of like, yeah, Scott went on a two-week Australian vacation. I'm sorry I mixed you up with that other white guy. Uh, Amen, I guess. And I do love the lovely woman in the background who is supporting Hurley's shenanigans by also echoing Amen. (laughs) Amen. Um, all right, back at the caves, uh, Shannon's just like kind of like looking at Claire, and everyone's just looking at Claire. And Claire goes up to Shannon. She's like, "Why are you looking at me?" And Shannon's like, "I'm not looking at you." And Claire's like, "What's your name?" She goes, "I'm Shannon." She goes, "Shannon, you're staring at." Uh, I mean, she is. And Shannon does a pretty dumb thing here too by being like, "Yes, I'm going to tell the trauma victim exactly what's going on and how she's directly involved in this. I will absolutely do that." Shannon, just uh, erasing a bit of the goodwill we've had towards her. Uh, Maybe it's just because she's freaked out by all of it and it's putting herself and Boone, sleepy Boone, in danger. But uh, not a lot of tact here in Shannon's approach. And Claire is now angry because she now is told by Shannon uh, everything that's been going on. She goes to Charlie and she says, why'd you lie to me? I thought you were my friend. He's like, yeah, I am your friend. I wanted to take care of you. And she's like, I could take care of myself, Charlie, okay? Yeah, see, Claire doesn't remember much, but she does remember that attitude that she had in Raised by Another, right? Of like, nope, I can raise my baby by myself. I can do this all on my own. So I do like that, despite Claire sort of almost being like a different person and that she has no memories, that independence still shines through no matter what. Uh, And then we get another flashback. So this is flashback number four. I guess the point that I was going to make is that there's only five flashback scenes in this episode and it's not so bad, but I believe there's six. (laughs) Disregard, disregard, disregard. This one isn't great. This is like Charlie's really sick. Uh, He puts on the suit. She gives him uh, a briefcase, whatever the case may be. Uh, I wonder if there's an airplane in there. She says, everybody, every working professional has a briefcase. I I got you a little plane to take out during presentations. Yeah. And he steals the Churchill thingy. What is it, a flask? I don't yeah, even know he, what he it is. Yeah, he steals the flask. It's interesting why he decides to do it then. And like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out at this point, is he living with Lucy 
If not, why is he getting ready there? Uh, and, you know, it, it feels like, I guess, much like uh, you were complaining about how why the survivors felt like they had to immediately act upon Scott getting killed. You could also argue, why did Charlie feel like in this moment he had to steal the flask if this was the long con and he essentially decided to pull off the robbery right here, right now? Because, I mean, that's going to be really the smoking gun for him is that he's going to have this in his pocket. I think he was intending... Smoking gun is uh, going to come a little bit later, I yeah, think. Or, uh, yeah, the smoking gun. There's also the shooting up uh, gun, quite literally, that Charlie is more so indulging. Uh, but he, you know, I, th- I guess his plan was to get on the bus, take the flask back to Tommy on his way to work. I suppose, though Lucy sort of busts that down by deciding to drive her to work, or drive him to work herself. I just don't understand why Charlie felt like he had to take the flask in this moment you know it wasn't like he was gonna pull a kate and t- not go to work and just take off with the flask i don't know why the immediacy was there uh all right let's get back to the island and jack and Locke are gonna be talking and i think after what happened to steve i'm sorry scott uh jack is gonna say to Locke, like all right so what happens if we don't bring claire to ethan and Locke says rhetorical uh a rhetorical question jack uh we're on ethan's turf he's got the advantage uh, we're nothing more than scared idiots with sharp sticks to him. And Jack says, what if I told you? <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop. What if I told you I had a way to get the advantage back? Oh, yeah. Jack doing his said. best uh, early or I guess late Morpheus audition for the Matrix yes. sequels. Yes. And Mr. Muhlenberg, advantage is a tennis term uh, in case you uh, were unaware. Oh, I get mm-hmm. it. Though I guess they'll mm-hmm. ultimately be the winner. Am I, yes. am I correctly using that tennis term of winner? I don't know. I mean, I guess there's multiple uses. Uh, so uh, he says, I got I got a way to get the advantage back. And uh, Locke goes, ooh, what might that be, Jack? So, so he does say Jack. Uh, and so Jack then brings Locke into the jungle. And like he like brings him down. He like he's looking around like uh, like they're like two like uh, like high schoolers who are about to like smoke pot behind the school. And he's like, you, you keep a lookout for the cops. Yeah, and then Locke would be like, don't worry, I've done. been I've done this before. Yeah, I, I know, know all about weed. I'm, <laughs> I'm a former pot farmer myself. <laughs> exactly. Like it's a territory I've been through before. I've literally cultivated it, Jack. Yeah. You don't need to be embarrassed yeah. around me. Yes, but he then opens up the briefcase, and then Locke has uh, one of the lines of the episode. Why, doctor, you've been holding out on us. Uh, just great. Great, great, great line. And th- this uh, is a, it's an interesting, like, j- almost joyful moment from John Locke. Uh, especially, you know, when, when Jack's like, hey, do you, I mean, this is a typical loss to get figured out, especially with guns, when someone asks, like, hey, do you know how to use that thing? And you see, like, Locke, like, pull out, you know, uh, pull out the, the, the bullets and look at the bullets and load it and cock it in the course of, like, five seconds. Uh, not really answer the question, but I guess do so through his actions. And you see Terry O'Quinn look at matthew fox and you see the smallest smile creep across his face and i was trying to wonder from Locke's perspective what that smile represents what do you think josh is it that you know now they have the advantage is it, is it the yeah fact it's that he like, has, like all right we've got we've got a move to make here like this is good this is good and also i think like he's seeing like jack lead that's what he that's what he's wanted before is like you're the leader you're the doctor people look up to you this is a great move i'm proud of you jack uh you've got the stuff you can keep a secret he's also probably meditating on whether or not and how to bring Locke into his world whenever he does it uh to bring jack into his world whenever he does it that is um and also Locke's probably just like stoked to like maybe like use a gun because it's like an adventure and he loves games and he loves adventure uh, and so this uh this all maps onto the things that john Locke likes to do yeah i mean i think also again if lost maybe took place at a later time he would totally be like that guy playing call of duty online and getting like owned by 11 year old kids uh or or a randy nations type 
So I can imagine that, you know, I don't exactly know what Locke's arms training is, but it seems like it's pretty proficient as well that he is somebody who is very comfortable with it in his hands. Uh, all right, so everyone's going to tell Charlie, like, all right, we've got this plan, and the plan is we're going to ensnare Ethan. We're going to ensnare him. Uh, we're going to use Claire as bait, and Charlie's pissed about this, and Claire overhears, and she's like, no, I actually think this isn't the worst plan. She's like, if I can stop him from hurting anyone else, I'm going to do it. And Charlie's like, all right, fine, but I want in. I want in on this. And they're like, Charlie, no. Yeah. You're, uh, you're, not, you're not a guy who gets a gun here. Wrong guy for the gun. Claire's attitude is so interesting uh because it's self-sacrificial but it's also super interesting considering like you know she doesn't know this but what she ran away from was essentially her becoming a sacrifice they intended to deliver Aaron and then kill claire and so what claire is essentially doing is you know offering herself up to bait where in the worst case scenario she does get captured and killed it's a really weird way to look at things knowing all the course of events but Awesomely brave attitude on Claire's part. And here, again, Charlie is almost like speaking up against her wishes, being like, this is not the right thing to do. And even if it is, he wants to get involved. But it's very clear that this guy uh, did not pass the background check when it came to handling this stuff. Yeah. Speaking of the background, as as he like is being uh, separated from everybody else, uh, you hear Jack saying to Saeed and Locke, both of whom have, have guns, he goes, Saeed, you're the soldier. Locke, you're the hunter. And you don't hear Locke say... Jack, you're the doctor. <laughs> or doctor, you're that. the doctor. Uh, but I appreciated Locke, you're the hunter. Because isn't that the debate? Is he a farmer or a hunter? Well, yeah, and I think that was the, uh, that was the thing back in All the Best Daddies, right? Is uh, Locke saying, you know, you be the leader, I'll be the hunter. So again, it's mm-hmm. about these really interesting siloed roles that these people find themselves in, in in creating a society, at least in its initial stages. But I think even we're seeing in this episode how the lines are being a bit blurred, where Locke isn't just a hunter, Locke is a strategist. Jack isn't yeah. just a doctor. Jack is a leader. Saeed's not just a soldier. Saeed is a communicator. You know, he's, a, he's an intellectual. And so to have them fill these roles for this mission, it's almost like they've been given Philip Shepard-esque code names. And <laughs> Charlie is, I don't know, like the X Factor or something. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, they're like uh, exhibiting decent stealth R Us. They're going to yeah. get the drop on Ethan. So Philip would be proud for sure. I, I, well, absolutely. He would take his feather 100%. off in his cap to salute them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mike, I'm having a great time right now. I just want to stop. No, I'm, I'm having just, so fun. much fun right now. I'm having so much <laughs> fun. Who, who thought of all the episodes? Homecoming. Homecoming. <laughs> homecoming. All right. Uh, let's uh, speaking of fun and speaking of a thing <laughs> that uh, that like in my, in my memory of Lost, like I would think about back on very cynically. Uh, this is another, you know, we, we really loved the physical bit of comedy from Charlie in special where he's like moving the, the, the bag around and Dominic Monaghan's really funny there. Well, here we are, uh, the penultimate flashback scene of the episode where Charlie is going to like end up like barfing in the photocopier and he's trying to like sell photocopiers and it's not going very well. It's really fun. Let's listen to it. Allow me to demonstrate the awesome speed CA15 using one of your... Technical manuals. No problem, Miss Bobby. Something in here. One second, one second. Bear with me. Uh, 
I don't oh know if it God. was like wise to put uh, barfing noises into the ears of the listeners here, but hopefully you were adequately prepared. It wasn't yeah. too aggressive. No, it was not. And I just can't get over the music, Josh. It's like SpongeBob SquarePants ukulele music to, well, it's to like, underscore it's like, it. It's like lost Muzak. Yeah, it you know? really is. It's like elevator music. If you're taking, you know, going down to the orchid, this is what you listen to. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. It's really fun. It's really fun. I don't know if I'm going to be able to have as great of an attitude when we get to you all every. I was going to say, like, have we I opened the door for that? I don't think <laughs> so. I don't think so. I don't. I don't know. Maybe. 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 I don't know. I, you know, on this on this watch through loss, I'm very forgiving of almost everything at this point. It seems so. This like, is, I'm just having a good time. A random detail I want to ask about this because obviously, like, uh, you know, TV uh, DS uh, Charlie bungles his presentation. But what I noticed is. Josh, when you are at like an ATM or on something that like involves a touchscreen, like if you're getting a Metro card, what finger do you use to for the touchscreen? I'm curious. I uh, like on my phone and stuff. No, no. When you're when you're like at a kiosk with a touchscreen. Oh, you, I guess I'm a, a pointer finger guy. Yeah, I'm I'm a middle finger guy, and my okay. my wife is. Very, I always knew this about you, Mike. Yeah, I was gonna say my wife's very weirded out by that, but I felt a bit vindicated in that. If you look back at this horrifically cringy scene, Dominic Monaghan is a middle finger guy too. He's pressing mm-hmm. the green button with his middle finger, so I felt like I was in a bit of a club. Yeah. Moon Muhlenberg, a.k.a. the middle finger. Yeah, that's my uh, Philip you're like, nickname. Yeah, you're like, uh, you're like Dick Tracy, uh, uh, like rogues gallery uh, <laughs> names are starting to come together. Yeah. yeah. Like Warren Beatty should be knocking down your door any second here. Your nails being uh, clipped, middle finger. Oh, my God. Yeah, Middle finger and, and numbers and mumbles and shoulders and flat top all hanging out. Yeah, and broken hands and broken arms. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so back on the island, Locke is going to tell Jack that Charlie has a point. We've got four guns. We should have four men. Why does it have to be four men? Locke? Yeah, come on, Jack. It's um, 2005. They're going to go to Sawyer, uh, and uh, they're going to they're gonna get into the, the gun situation with Sawyer. Help. Moi? You know how to handle a gun or not. Well, I know at least one polar bear seems to think so. Where'd you get the hardware, Hoss? I want to come. Sorry, we're out of guns. And no one goes out there unarmed. How much ammo you got? 100 rounds, give or take. All nines, right? Nine millimeter guns? Yeah. Why? But if the lady wants to come... Lifted this off the marshal back in the old days. Remember him, don't you? Surly guy, kind of square jaw, carries Sig 9. Yeah, I remember you shot him and missed. Yeah, well, bygones. And hell, five guns are better than four. Uh, there's a lot to talk about with the scene, but the first thing I, I immediately had an association with, and it's the Muppet loving person in me is when uh sawyer said help moi i can only imagine it was done in a bad miss piggy voice <laughs> help moi come here it's in hell <laughs> wow count jacula and miss piggy need to need to meet we need yeah. to set them up well i guess if sawyer is miss piggy then is is kate kermit 
I think so. That that works for me. I think Sawyer is Miss Piggy and Kate as Kermit is uh, is a is a good one for me for sure. <laughs> or so or soy. Yeah. I I bygones. Sawyer, you don't get to say that about the Marvels. Yeah, that's not, that's not your thing. I'm like, yes. you don't get to choose that it's bygones. Everybody else gets to weigh in on this. They yeah. get to tell you when they've forgiven. It would essentially be him saying like, "Well, you're welcome." Like, no, yeah. <laughs> it's the exact opposite yeah. intention. What did you think about his choice to reveal that he had the Marshall's gun? Uh, I mean, do we think, like, he was holding on to that for, like, self-protection or just as part of, like, our Squirrely Sawyer black market storyline? Bit of both, right? Bit of both. But what I like about it in terms of growth for Sawyer is that he, you know, he's being brought into a proactive mission to end the killing, uh, to to stop Ethan, and he's got something that he knows will be useful for the mission. And he values Kate. Like, he suspects that Kate would be valuable in this. Uh, and this is, like, another one of those moments, like, when Sawyer, um, when when he tackles, when he doesn't tackle Michael, but, he, like, he's, like, holding Michael back from wailing on Jin. And he takes on, like, a protector role in that. Uh, like, a little bit of, like, a, a conciliator role, right? Mm-hmm. Like, where he's, like, stepping in. Uh, this this feels of a piece of that with me. Uh, and, and I like that about Sawyer in this moment. I don't love the bygones part, uh, although I love it as line delivery. I think it's another just great Sawyerism. You don't have to, like, like him and value him as a human being yet to enjoy the character. And I, I definitely enjoy everything about him in this scene. Um, but I do think that he's exhibiting some, uh, some, some growth as a, as a character in this moment. Yeah, he's becoming more of the community, which I find super interesting. Because, again, it's still Sawyer. He's still sassy. He's still quoting the Muppets when he's uh, getting the offer to become a gunman here. But he is going to be part of this jungle ambush. And, you know, we're, we're not a far cry away from him becoming a key member of the raft team, which the community puts a lot of stake in, in terms of them getting rescued. So even just watching the Sawyer transition in these teen episodes has been really interesting. And, you know, also compare his relationship to Kate with Jack's relationship to Kate, where it seems like Jack is being very spiteful, in my opinion, towards Kate, where I think he knows Kate's history. He knows she's capable, more than capable, of using a weapon, but either because he's a bit afraid about, you know, her admission at the end of whatever the case may be, or he's still angry about it, despite them uh, bonding over fruit seeds. He chooses not to give her one, because Sawyer and Kate have, I guess, made up a bit more. There was the whole thing with the diary, and they seem to be a bit more on the same page. He's the one that offer hers, offers her up. And so we're bringing back this sort of triangular dynamic, and there's this really interesting stare we see between Jack and Sawyer that feels like it almost has a thousand words in it in terms of, you know, Jack, I think, being very clearly PO'd that Kate got brought on board, also probably being... Uh, very P.O. that Sawyer had a gun that he did not talk about, considering how secretive Jack has been with the stash. And Sawyer just sort of being like, yep, I got one up on you, Doc. Uh, you know, it looks like you're not so powerful. You, you know, you're not so powerful after all. All right. So we've got our gun squad here. It's going to be Jack, Locke, Sawyer, Saeed, Kate. Saeed's going to say the guns are a measure of last resort. We want them alive. And they're going to go marching off into the jungle. And you see Charlie with his back against a tree as he's watching them walk off. And this is what you were talking about, about the fade. Uh, We fade from Charlie to thunder and lightning brimming in the background to signal the fact that a storm is coming. It's another incredible transition. Uh, It just it continues to like escalate this tension that something really intense is about to happen. This is the first time our characters are really going to war. Yeah. Right? Like, this is a mission. This is intense. Yeah, and I, this entire scene that it fades into is by far and away my favorite part of the episode. The rest of this act, really, because you have, it's 
all silent for the most part uh, until, you know, obviously the, the action happens where, you know, we cut around to everyone posted up. The gunmen are, are at their places, all five of them. And Claire, you know, is, is put out there as bait. She's the goat waiting for the T-Rex, speaking of the, the rain in the jungle. And, you know, she does a, a great job, uh, you know, running away once Ethan just sort of appears out of nowhere. And uh, as we, you know, when we come back from commercial, we get more into it. But it is legitimately frightening. And I'm very, very happy with the way they did this. Because like you said, it, it really sets up this idea of terror. This idea that the others were such a big threat to the island has only been recently presented in the canon of the show. It's much more recently than the smoke monster. And so they really had to do a service of building up how big of a threat this is. And I feel like in this episode, even though we find out that Ethan is a rogue agent for the others, it does a good job of showing at least at the outset what the others are capable of and why they're so scary. This scene is great. This scene is really scary and intense and really cool. And the rain is coming down and Claire's in the middle and you see everybody in their little spots. Saeed's in a tree. Sawyer's on on the ground. Jack's hiding behind something. Locke's behind something. Kate's behind something. Uh, and Ethan like climbs up over the hill. And I always thought of him as like very Gollum-ish in this moment. Uh, there's just like something very Smeagol about the whole thing. Uh, and he's like covered in mud and it's so wet and he's still got like the, the really angry face and the scratches on his face are still there. And Claire's screaming and running away. And then commercial break, momentum interrupted. They don't love that. Don't yeah. love that. Wish that this could all just be presented as one. I think if there's a, a one of the big knocks against this episode is where, uh, where we, where we uh, smashed a commercial from time to time. Uh, I think that this is a miscalculation there, but let's remove that for the time being. When we come back, uh, the chase continues, and then here comes Jack, and it's round two. It's the rematch. Uh, and this time, look who's uh, hitting like a Mack truck, yep. a Jack truck. Yeah, I mean, we haven't really seen him in the, the time between, but Jack has been training in the jungle. <laughs> He's been hitting a couple of bags of recycled cans, just sort of built his train. Take it to the limit. Yeah, <laughs> Ethan! He screams on top of the mountains. But yeah, I mean, Jack initially is getting bodied again, so we think it's just going to be a repeat of the usual. But he fights back and it gets to a point where like, he is over Ethan, and for a hot second, it's always that trope, Josh, of where someone is, you know, uh, over somebody, punching them and punching them again, and it makes you think for a second, like, oh my god, are they going to beat them to death? Jack doesn't do that, but you have to feel like there's at least some sort of, like, pathos of this for him, right? It's, it's yeah. cathartic, where he's like, oh, yeah. I not only did I get rocked last time, but you're a threat to my community and my people. You killed one of us, and now I'm out for blood. This is going to be the same Jack who, at the end of season three threatens to kill Tom Friendly over that walk the that walkie-talkie and it feels like there there's shades of that going on right here right now in terms of the lengths Jack will go to to protect his people. Yeah, but I also think like there's an intelligence about this as well. Like there's a lot of emotion and anger in in what he's taking out on Ethan, but he also knows firsthand how tough Ethan is. So I got to kick this guy's ass yeah. to make sure he stays on yeah, the you ground. You have an advantage, don't let it go. Yeah, so he just he winner by a knockout, as Sawyer says, uh, and they've got him. Uh, they've got him cornered. I love Locke here. His first action is to check on Claire. Yeah. Are you all right? Uh, like I think all the way through by the book. This is this is great. And here comes Charlie, and he just assassinates him. I do love Sawyer's sort of smarminess, like winner by a knockout. Nice one, Doc. Now maybe someone can tell me who or what this son of a bitch is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go no, Jungle Boy, uh, and then Charlie kills Ethan. Uh, and I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, who killed Ethan? Oh, Charlie, come on! It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting reveal where I, I think it's a great 
uh, way of doing it where, you know, and you can speak about the actual action of killing Ethan, which I think we we should certainly debate in terms of, like, what it represents for the series and, and the plot moving forward. But you just see Ethan down on the ground and you just see his, you know, chest ricochet from the gunshots and everyone shockingly looks at it and then looks over and it's Charlie holding the gun. And I, I was pretty shocked the first time around. Now looking at the huge amount of foreshadowing to the point where he was hovering over the tree before we got to this scene it's pretty clear that you know we knew uh charlie was at least going to be involved but yeah it's it's a big big moment because this was the first big bad of the series really besides the smoke monster and he goes down he goes down he goes down hard um and i think for charlie I think Charlie's rationale makes sense, and I think it, you can you can accept it more when you accept that Charlie is somebody who makes questionable decisions, right? Uh, and I do think that and impulsive decisions too. Yeah, uh, he's somebody who acts pretty quickly. Um, so I think that this is in character for Charlie. I think um, I think it's in character. Whether or not it was the the right thing to do, I think we'll certainly right. I don't do I, I don't think it was. I think it was the wrong thing to do. I think that this is a bad choice. Uh, but I think it's in character. I think it I think it makes sense given everything we know about Charlie up to this point, and certainly where he goes from here. Uh, even even more so, I think informing the fact that this is something that like Charlie would do. Yeah, that Charlie Charlie. Uh, uh, shoots first, asks questions later, literally in this point. Charlie is someone who is amenable to poisons. Uh, he had the poison of heroin, obviously, seeping through his body. He had the poison of an addiction clouding his mind for so much of his recent life. Here, in this episode, he was poisoned by vengeance. I think, you know, when he saw Claire come back and seeing, you know, what he did to her, he was happy that she was alive, but at the same time, it was a representation to him of okay, Ethan nearly killed me and, you know, he clearly harmed the woman that I care about. I need to get revenge. And that just has completely overwritten any sense of rationalization that Charlie can have. That's why we see him running around like a chicken with his head cut off the entire episode asking for somebody to do something because he feels like it needs to happen. And that's what drives him into the jungle. Dangerously so. There are five people with guns as Jack said before, one small move and someone could get shot. Here, Charlie is seemingly like following them into the jungle, you know, waiting and meeping around until Jack drops his gun through his fight with Ethan and then decides to take it into his own hands. And I think that this was not Charlie's, you know, doing this, pulling the trigger. This was the vengeance of Charlie. And it's still a part yeah. of him, but it's, it's a part of him that I don't think, you know, the Charlie of a couple of episodes, uh, you know, the Charlie of before episode 10 would have done it's a really interesting character beat for him yeah i agree completely um i i like this a lot more right now than i probably ever have mm. in terms of assessing charlie's character like i think it just it, it fits more um and and it, and it is just sort of like a uh a detail that i think is like stemming fairly naturally from the arc right now um i'm enjoying the charlie arc more than i expected um Another great transition, right? Like we we go from Ethan's dead body on the ground, and and we go to the dawn, and the clouds are parting, and the rain is going away, and we're once again looking out from the island. Uh, not lost on me uh, at this moment, at least it was before that we keep looking out to the ocean where Ethan yeah. had come in. Uh, that's kind of that's kind of cool. Yeah, and it's also uh, and what, and it's also what threats are still out there, right? It's literally the calm after the storm, too. Right, uh, right. That you know, uh, it, uh, rain always happens at the best times in loss or the, the most climactic moments. Uh, we saw it last time that Ethan encountered these people. Now it's happening again. And now that he is dead, you can almost say that, you know, he was the, the cloudy sky over this camp and now it is dissipated. But 
there are still, you know, cumulonimbus clouds remaining that look a bit suspect. And I think Charlie is still one of them, given the weight of what he did. All right. Uh, let's go to the penultimate sound of the episode. Uh, this is post-execution of Ethan. Jack wants to check in on Charlie and basically be like, WTF, mate? <laughs> yeah, they are close to Australia, so I guess that makes sense. I love the gravity in Dominic Monaghan's voice while he's having this conversation. Like this, this feels like a different Charlie. This is the Charlie that we mm-hmm. saw a bit during, uh, during whatever the case may be. And it's even different from the Charlie we saw thrown up in the copier earlier on in the episode. Like I think Charlie knows the severity of what he did and he's trying to justify it to both Jack and himself. Yeah, I think so too. I read that the same way. Uh, it's great. Great moment. Good acting. Uh, great acting from Dominic Monaghan in this episode. Uh, you know, the questionable, the questionable flashback and stuff aside, you know, really, really good performance from him. Well, speaking, speaking of that, let's get to number six. <laughs> yeah, the final flashback of the episode. Charlie's going to go to Lucy and he's be like, eh, want to explain what happened? She's like, yeah, don't. Please don't. Uh, well, I don't know why you're being such an a-hole. Like, I, I get that you're selfish. I know why you pretended to like me and why you stole yeah, from me, uh-huh. but why'd you take the job? Yeah, I, and there's a really, I mean, first of all, when she opens the door, it's clear that she's crying, and there's this really heartbreaking yeah. thing where Charlie's like, I didn't mean to, and she interrupts him to say, oh, you meant to from the start. You meant to, you and meant to. And it's true. He he expressly started a relationship with her with the intention of robbing her, and say what you want to about him, you know, falling for the, for his mark and all that jazz, but that's what he was aiming to do the entire time. Uh, and so you really cannot separate those feelings out, and understandably, she's furious about that. Absolutely. Absolutely furious. Uh, says, I, I wanted you to think I could take care of you. She says, you'll never take care of anyone. Close the door in his face and we're back on the island and everybody's they're, they're going about their island bedtime routine. Obviously, Boone's already asleep. He's been asleep for seven hours at this point. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he's like Rip Van Winkle uh, and has just been asleep for like two days. <laughs> He's really tired, uh, and Hurley's listening to his music, and Jin and Son are getting ready for bed, and Jack's got his water, uh, and Shannon's with Saeed. She's, like, tending to his arm because he's a little bit injured out there, I guess. Uh, and Charlie's just alone until Claire shows up. And let's close out the episode with this final sound from the episode. I remember peanut butter. Why do I remember peanut butter? I don't know what happened to me. I'm scared. I want to trust you.
Good night, Charlie. That's how it ends. We we the music. That's homecoming, and that's homecoming. Yeah, we we don't get we don't get our little lost. Uh, you know, I think uh, Craig Falkenham actually, in response to my comment last week that this the uh, last week's ending was one of my least favorite. He did point out that there are really two types of lost endings. There is you know the big cliffhanger endings like we saw last week, and there's the more softer character based endings like we get here. And like you said, Giacchino was really. You know, again, the performances are really simple and really well done, but Giacchino is really what brings the emotion here. To the point where you just have the one doting note, almost like a heartbeat of their relationship, just pinging. And maybe the heart was stopped for some time when Claire came back, but now it started back up and that they made a little bit of progress, reaching towards each other once again. And for Charlie, that's a start. He may have done some horrible, horrible stuff to get to this point. But in, in at this time, it's all worth it for him because they're finally starting to make a connection again. All right. Well, plenty more to say about Homecoming uh, as we move into the feedback section. But before we do, I know that Charlie informed Claire that uh, what she's been missing out on is the fact that they've built a golf course out on the island. What he forgot to mention is that they were taking bets on the golf course out on the island. And that reminds me, Mike, of your friend and mine, the great people over at BetDSI.com. Where everyone's a winner and it's not just a tennis term. Uh, bet, bet DSI has a live betting platform where you can watch all the events and even bet on all the games until the final whistle. New members get a 100% bonus match using promo code RECAP101. Double your money to start winning today. Bet DSI has been paying winners for 20 years. It's top rated on betting review sites. It's got a very user-friendly interface and mobile site. Bet DSI comes with the fastest payouts in the industry. You simply play, win, and get paid. BetDSI offers betting options for everything. You can bet on the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, the boxing, all the other major sports, politics, reality TV, esports, virtually everything. You can use live betting at BetDSI to bet on games from start to finish. Every play, every minute, right until the end. As a reminder, new members get 100% bonus match using promo code RECAP101. Double your money to start winning today. So if that sounds interesting to you, go to BetDSI.com, use promo code RECAP101, and get this limited time 100% bonus offer to make some extra cash. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. Mike, let's get into the 15, 16 others section. And as we often do when we get into this mode, uh, we start with a look back at the episode before. And we had put it out into the universe and we manifested it. Uh, we, at, we called for a defense of Susan, Susan Porter. Uh, and here's John Krause with other number one who is delivering in defense of Susan. Uh, this, is from, this is from John. Uh, okay, I can't really defend Susan at all. <laughs> that's how it and starts. the end of the uh, number one. <laughs> uh, he says, she's cartoonishly horrid to Michael, but I think her actions in this episode combined with Michael's serious Bible entry make her actions more understandable here. I think that Susan was a career-driven woman who never intended to settle down and have a baby. Her relationship with Michael was probably intended to be a one-night stand. Maybe the date didn't even go very well. After she found out she was pregnant, she told Michael, and he charmed her into trying to make this work. She 
spends the next two years being miserable. Sure, she has the baby and loves the baby, but every time she sees Michael, she sees what could have been. He represents her sacrificing all of her ambitions, and she quickly grows to resent and maybe even hate him. When she's presented with an opportunity to go to Amsterdam and jumpstart her career back on track, she takes it without a second thought. For the rest of her life, Michael is a complete afterthought. He was never supposed to be in her life anyway. I also think that Michael's willingness to give up on his art in order to support a family is something that she can't fathom. From her point of view, she's constantly giving Michael an out, and she just can't understand why he won't take it. That's the John Krause defense of Susan Porter. I mean, I guess I can see it in the decisions she makes, and I guess her projecting on Michael, but that's entirely sociopathic. It's a lot. It's a, it's a lot it's, to put it's on a lot. Michael. It's a lot to put on Michael, and something that Michael has like not deservedly brought to the relationship. Again, from what we saw, he was nothing but you know caring for her. He said, "Go back to law school. You know, don't worry. I'll be able to. I'll put you know my aspirations on the line to work in this career." He showed nothing but love to her son, and I mean, if she really is projecting onto Michael this idea of you know someone who is a sacrificing all of all of his ambitions just to support a family i mean it just makes michael even unluckier to to unfortunately have a have a child with this person even if it did bring the majesty that is walt into the world all right so other number two uh we're not defending susan for much longer (laughs) your your friend of mine your friend of mine jim fells is showing up to the party here uh the the (laughs) what is it the susan exposed party uh (laughs) jim fells writes in and says all my lvp points in this episode would have gone to susan Ryan is obviously terrible, but apparently he only adopted Walt because Susan wanted him to. If her conversations with Michael are any indication, it must have gone down something like this. Hi, Brian. I've been thinking you should perhaps adopt Walt. He needs a father in his life. Brian would respond, yeah, but the kid's so creepy. And Michael and Susan says, Michael's already agreed. And he signed the adoption papers. Here they are. Brian says, wait, when did you sign them for Walt? In addition to that, the one Walt flashback depicting Susan as a parent has her completely ignoring him when he's talking to her. Worse, she even pulls the I'm a lawyer, so your argument is invalid card. All that being said, I don't think she's a terrible character like, say, Achara, which I Bless believe you. is Bai Ling's character. We just, we just always think of her as Bai Ling. Um, Jim, Jim Fells continues, Susan seems like a very, very real person. She's career-driven and very smart. She's also terrifying. Um, yeah, it tends to be the take that I subscribe to more. Yeah, I mean, she's a real person, but I, real people can be terrible as well. And yeah. I, think, I think that definitely shows in that episode. Uh, other number three, coming from David Healy, and I love this. This is really, really funny. Uh, David had written in and said, One of my favorite things from this episode is when Michael first tells Saeed that he wants to make a raft. And Saeed responds by saying, A raft? Uh, and Michael responds by saying, Don't say it like that. <laughs> Uh, and David thinks, I always like to pretend that he literally doesn't like how Saeed pronounces Raph as Raph. Now I need a spinoff of Michael and Saeed as Eliza Doolittle and Henry Higgins as Michael educates Saeed to not speak in his accent. I mean, I think that that would be a lot for a lot of reasons. Uh... But David David Healy has uh, an uncanny ear for Lost is yeah. something that I'm going to tease for when we get to season yeah, three. Yeah, there's a moment in season three, apparently. I don't want to say I don't want to bring it up yet. No, no, no. It's it's sticking out there like a pylon, but we will get to it yeah. when we get to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had a very funny chat about this a few weeks ago, so we'll definitely get there when, when the time is right. Spoiler alert, it involves Saeed, but it's not something that Saeed says. Uh, anyway, all right, let's get into some production notes from this episode. Other number four, uh, as as we had teased 
Homecoming is indeed Damon's least favorite episode of Lost. The source on this is a USA Today interview with Lindelof. Um, and and Ben, uh, the Ben behind the curtain, excerpts it and says that Lindelof had said, Homecoming, I think, was flawed on almost every single level that an episode of Lost could be. Uh, he compared it to Stranger in a Strange Land, and Damon stated that although the episode had many flaws, none of them were that the script was terrible. Um, so I think that he thinks that the script... For homecoming was terrible. If I'm hmm. if I'm uh, interpreting that correctly, it's interesting because I would say the performances definitely elevated this script. I would say that particularly the flashback material just across the board is not very good. And I think that someone like Dominic Monaghan is one of the only people that could bring all these really stupid, cheesy Charlie lines to life and make it look like he does genuinely have feelings for Lucy. So. I mean, for me, it's really, and not to tease too much about the 4.2 stars of it all, it's really for me between, like, do I like this more or less than whatever the case may be? Uh, or whatever the case may be had some really bad dialogue in it as well. Uh, and I would say that it's definitely comparable, but I guess the stuff on Island is better written, doesn't feel as ham-fested, again, to quote Antonio Mazzaro, as something like mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. So I'm going to give the slight edge to Homecoming here from that regard. Yeah, I think so too. You know, I I think as we're as we're thinking about that time, right? Like that we know that like this is this episode arrives I don't know if it's quite in the midst of like the really difficult time that that Lindelof is having with Lost in the production of the show or like shortly thereafter, but either way close enough to like the headspace where maybe like you think back on this and you've got it's got like hot stove a hot stove quality to it where like it just it feels bad. Um but I think he's being really hard on it. I, I don't think that this is anywhere even close to being the worst episode of Lost. Um, it's an episode that has, just even even watching it today and then talking it through even more, it's an episode that's only elevating in my mind. Yeah, there, there are things honest. to admire. And that's what I'm realizing about this rewatch as well, is that like I feel like there are very few, maybe if any, bad episodes of Lost that are outright bad episodes of television, where there yeah. is nothing yeah. redeeming in it. Even through... No, the, the worst episode of the show has something redeeming. Exactly. And I feel like as we get through the teens, which by far, I feel like across the board pale in comparison to the first 10 or 11 episodes before we end up breaking uh, for the holidays. Even though it's a step down, there still are things that we're picking apart from each episode that we have the luxury of doing and investigating it so granularly. That makes me feel like, okay, yeah, this isn't very strong. But there is still something to discuss, either for good or for bad, which I think girds us, uh, you know, adequately for especially when we approach season two in particular. Okay, other number five. Uh, apparently, we're missing a fight scene from this episode. Whoa. Uh, uh, William Mapether, uh, in an interview, uh, had had talked about the fact that there was a there was a fight. Uh, with with Locke that misses uh, that that misses out of the episode. Uh, that Ethan, the way that he he doesn't just like simply appear. What we're missing is there's a fight between Ethan and Locke. He breaks through the perimeter at Locke's point and fights him, and Locke stabs Ethan in the leg before Ethan knocks Locke out. Uh, so you can see Ethan's kind of limping by the time he reaches Claire. And according to Mapether, uh, this is the only reason that Jack is able to get the better of Ethan. Uh, sorry, William Mapether, uh, but as uh, as they. Say Say with another show, exit interviews are not always canon. <laughs> uh, I don't know if this is canon, uh, especially if it didn't um, make it onto the show. So I don't think we could say this is canon Rutherford, unfortunately. Well, I don't know. I, uh, I'm looking at a picture right now that was put in our, in our lovely document by the Ben Behind the Curtain. And it does show Locke and Ethan getting dirty, wrestling in the mud with Locke holding a knife to Ethan's face. So I guess we do have visual evidence. 
it makes me wish that we had seen it. Maybe if we got rid of the flashback this episode and put that in, because Locke is someone who, you know, you could expect Jack, like the younger, uh, you know, uh, sort of more athletic guy to like really, you know, barrel down with someone like Ethan to have Locke get involved is wholly unexpected. And I, I kind of want that just for the unconventionality of it all. Yes. Um, but I, I think that I think that the way that it plays is so much better that he just like emerges from nowhere. Mm. I just think I think the way that it plays on the show, I think it's just like so much creepier. It would have been cool to see Locke and Ethan fighting it out, especially because they've got some history. But um, I think that the way that it plays out on the show is just tighter. I think it's a I think it's a stronger choice. It would have been interesting, though, if, if you know, if you're talking about the uh, I guess the, the proceedings of the hunting party, if they had, you know, done that first step. Locke and Ethan have this fight. They decide to strengthen reinforcements around the jungle, and that's when he comes in from the sea and decides to kill Scott. Right. Speaking of which, uh, leads us to other number six, uh, that I guess there was a charity event with Carlton Cuse and Adam Horowitz uh, in which uh, they revealed this bit of trivia uh, that that even the production couldn't tell the difference between Scott and Steve. Oh, my God. Um, All right. So in in The Moth, which is where Michael misidentifies Steve as Scott for the first time, the actor Dustin Watchman introduces himself as Scott, while Christian Bowman introduces himself as Steve. And in Homecoming, Scott dies, but it was Christian Bowman who was written out of the show, a.k.a. who had identified himself as Steve. So Dustin Watchman goes on to portray Steve from that point forward. Uh, and the writers continue to have so much difficulty remembering who was alive that they needed to have a note card in the writer's room that stated, Scott is dead, Steve is alive. You know what's great about that, Mike? That they didn't just decide we have to kill Steve so that they're both dead and we don't have to worry about this continuity error anymore. They didn't just punish Steve for their own memory lapses. I think very admirable of the Lost Right. Well, first off, I have so many theories now going. Uh, one of them is that I wish Dutch Dustin Watchman and Kristen Bowman could have pulled like uh, an Olsen twins or like a parent trap type of thing where they just kept switching appearing on the show as quote-unquote Steve and nobody would notice one way or the other. Also... Did an actor named Dustin Watchman get cast for the show? And Damon Lindelof says, well, I love that graphic novel from the 80s. One day I may adapt that thing. Thanks to you, Dustin Watchman. By the way, your character's dead. You're dead now uh, on the show. Uh, All right. Other number seven, a series Bible story of the week. Again, this is a story that was in the series Bible that was pitched to ABC, uh, but a story that did not make it onto the show. This is ridiculous. All right, you ready? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Always ready for the series Bible story of the week. Let's see who gets murdered this time. I mean, it's tough to outdo someone literally getting murdered on the show, but let's see how they do it. All right. Speaking of fruit, uh, as we've discussed on this podcast, a patch of wild berries used by the castaways is found stripped clean, and it soon becomes clear that the island is being subjected to a marching swarm of ravenous soldier ants. Are you you kidding me? (laughs) This is not the arachnophobia treatment. The ants are microscopic. With their own society in its most fractured state, Kate emerges as the clearest thinker, establishing herself as a true leader when the alpha males of the island are unable to resolve their differences. This is so all over the place. Ants? Uh, the, 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 <laughs> the ants? That's what causes a schism in the survivors? Is that their yeah. ants? It's funny that that's like the breaking point. Like I'm, I'm sick of this place. There's, there's, there's microscopic soldier ants. This, <laughs> they're eating my, they're eating my blueberry bush. But I'm just imagining like Locke and Jack arguing over like homemade treatments of like, well, you know, you don't need to kill them. I hear if you spray a certain spray around the holes that they come out of, they're not gonna come hurt you. Like, 
And then Kate is the one to be like, don't worry, guys. I know how to deal with these ants. Like, this is this is more ridiculous than the serial killer, in my opinion. To focus an entire episode of Lost around ants! Ants. Ants in my ants in my pants! Ants in my pants! Exactly. Like now I think we just need Paul Rudd and Michael Douglas just saying ants over and over again. And that would be a yes. better episode than this of Lost. Well, I guess it makes sense why Kate is the queerest oh thing when ants are involved. <laughs> She can communicate with them. Antony, yeah. get them all rounded up. Yeah, she knows what to do. She's got experience around here. Um, all right, let's get into some feedback from the listeners on Homecoming. Other number eight, coming our way from Stefan Johnson. It's a very simple question. Was Charlie justified in killing Ethan? I'll go first, Mike. I would say no, but it was in character. I would say I would say yes, but he backed his way into it, into the right decision, uh, if that makes sense. Basically because... I mean, what Charlie says in his conversation with Jack that we played is correct from what we know about Ethan. I think if Ethan had been captured, he would not have given up any information because we just know how cool and, you know, calculated he is. He would never give up anything about the others to anybody. He would rather take Locke's knife and slit his own throat than give up any information to the survivor. So theoretically, Charlie was right in that capturing him would have been fruitless. He's also correct that maybe had Ethan gotten away, he would have gone back to the others, said exactly what happened, and maybe a full assault would have been launched. But Charlie had no idea any of that about Ethan's character, nor his history, nor the others. Uh, so I feel like he made the right decision for the complete wrong reason. So it's tough to say right at the forefront that he's justified. Uh, all right, other number nine, Andre the Meatman, uh, great name, uh, comes in and says, I don't think I was ever more upset and angry at loss than when Charlie shot Ethan. Why? We were finally going to get some answers. Side could have tortured him. Anything. Was this just a plot device to preserve the question for a little bit longer? I would suspect, Mike, that this is probably part of the reason why, in retrospect, like Lindelof doesn't like this episode, that it feels to him like cheap, mm. right? Like that, like we had Charlie kill Ethan in order to, pre- to, to prevent further questions from being uh, answered and asked. Um, and that makes some sense to me. Uh, I still think that like it works for me as far as it, it progresses from from who Charlie has started to become and who he's going to continue to become. Um, and the fact that he's somebody who just like kind of reacts fast. Um, but I can understand why uh, it, I, I don't remember how frustrated I was by it uh, in the moment. I was pretty frustrated because this was, yeah, I think I was probably yeah, pretty annoyed by yeah, it because this well, was one I'm, of the bigger mysteries right. and we were finally getting some insight. They were finally going to capture another. And then this happens, but it also makes you question like if they did capture Ethan and somehow get information out of him, would the reveal at the end of, of Exodus be as horrifying and incredible as it ends up being, would Ben Linus being revealed as the leader of the others be as incredible of a twist if we found information about the others? I will say one thing that we may have been deprived of. I would have loved an episode in a sideways universe of Lost where they do capture Ethan and we just get an entire episode where you have Saeed and Jack weighing the options as to how they proceed with this. You know, they had this brief dalliance with this torture idea before with Sawyer that drove Saeed to leave the camp and definitely I think drove Jack to a place where he's like I can't believe I did that and you know definitely had some people looking at him a different way certainly from our perspective I would have loved to see how they would have approached that you know would the situation be different because of what he did to Scott and how he threatened and nearly killed you know everyone a lot of people in their community 
Or would that human side of them stick up and be like, he's a person at the end of the day, and I don't know if I can do that. I feel like that would have been a really interesting moral quandary that unfortunately we didn't find. But it's sort of, I guess, replacing one interesting plot point with another. I just think that would be a, a great sort of fan fiction lost episode that could have been made had a different decision been made. Yeah, totally. Totally. 100%. Um, other number 10, talking more about Ethan's attack. Uh, John Krause wanted us to theorize about why Ethan did what he did to to, to Scott. We already kind of offered that up. Ben Martell uh, adds, uh, poor Scott was already the butt of the joke around, around camp, and Ethan would have known that. Was Ethan just adding insult to injury, or did he pick Scott because he was so annoyed that no one could ever remember which was Scott and which was Steve? Maybe Ethan was like a real Steve guy. Mm, yeah, and, team and he's Steve. like, if I kill... If I kill Scott, then Steve stands a chance at actually being known in this place. And Steve deserves that chance. He's a good person. It's not on the list, but, you know, maybe someday. Maybe Scott was bragging in camp about like, oh, man, I love my hands and arms. They're the best things ever. I love swinging them around. I love doing things with them. I love my little fingers. I love how perfect they are and unbroken. Yeah, like I've got a manicure on my two-week Australia trip. And Ethan's like, yeah, screw you. I'm going to get the final word here, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, other number 11 from Daniel Brennan. Um, why would Ethan threaten Charlie to bring Claire to that spot in the jungle? Wouldn't it have been way easier to just sneak into camp and take her again as opposed to killing a bunch of people? It wasn't until after the threat that the survivors hatched the plan to create a perimeter and place guards overnight, likely making the task harder than it otherwise would have been. And obviously it all resulted in Ethan's death. The plan was so destructive that it almost seems like Ethan wanted to be caught or killed by the Oceanic crew. Yeah, I touched upon this before. I don't know if it's necessarily that. I just think it's very sloppy uh i think that again and it shows that he's not directly taking orders from somebody like ben linus this is ethan completely thinking on his own and it turns out that ethan not that great of a planner or not as great of a strategist as one john locke considering that you know i think once claire escapes i think his mind goes wild and he's just trying everything so yeah when he says bring claire to the middle of the jungle you know when she gets put as bait when it could very clearly be a trap, and he should realize it's a trap, yet he falls for it. It's it's pretty dumb, but as we've talked about before, with even with someone like Kate, I think Ethan's emotions may cloud him in this moment. This emotion is just pure rage at Claire getting away from him, and he will stop at nothing to get her back, even if he's not realizing what danger he's putting himself in. Right. Speaking of danger, other number 12 coming to us from the Ben Behind the Curtain uh, wants us to know, uh, was Locke just covering for Boone when he suggested that the others may have come from the sea? Or is it possible that he's covering uh, for Boone and they actually could have bypassed him? Um, the episode leaves it ambiguous, fill the gap for us. Uh, I don't think that he's just covering for Boone. I think that the others, I think that they came from the sea. We see their, we see their uh, capacities. Could you, could you uh, imagine if you see Locke like, uh, surreptitiously like, sweep up the footprints uh, leading from, mm-hmm. from Boone's side and like yeah, I guess that's <laughs> nothing happened here uh, you know they must have come yeah. from the ocean uh, I mean he is so yeah. defensive of Boone because Boone is his one big lackey that he's his squire his squire exactly he, he wants to cover for him um, this is from Melissa Forziat uh, I recently saw the movie The Night of the Hunter for the first time in it the villain has words tattooed on the fingers of each hand similar to the finger tape that Charlie has one says hate the other says love Throughout the film, there is significant symbolism around the actions he takes with his hands and which hand he uses for different scenes. As I was watching the movie, I wondered if the accessories Charlie had chosen is meant to be a reference to this character. But then I thought about it more, and I realized how much symbolism there is with Charlie's hands. He has the drive shaft ring, 
And one of the most iconic images of the series is Charlie with his not pennies boat message written on his hand to the and that he puts up in the to the glass. Um, I'm wondering if you see more to unpack about the way in which the show uses Charlie's hands. Uh, that's really great. Yeah, he's a musician. Yeah, I was gonna right? say. You I know? mean, we we the first thing we see him do is like drumming nervously on on the uh, on the aisle seat. Like he uses his hands every single day of his life. Maybe even more than Scott, he values his hands more than him and. Yeah, it is interesting that, uh, you know, his hands end up having the most symbolism. Like, I would say, you know, hands, his hands are probably the most symbolic part of his body. It's very odd to say, but I think Melissa brings up a great point that there is so much involved with Charlie's hands and his hand-based accessories. And I will say, I have not seen The Night of the Hunter. The only way I know about the love and hate tattoos is I believe there's a gag from the uh, classic Simpsons episode, Cape Fear, in which Sideshow Bob has hate and love tattooed on his fingers, but since he only has three fingers, it's L U V and H A T with a long dash above the A to include a long to indicate a long A sound instead of a short A sound. Okay, other number fourteen coming from Scott French. Uh, Lucy mentioned that her dad was off buying some paper company in Slough. Uh, this connects the Lost Universe to the to the British office, which connects to the U S <laughs> office which is another mark against Jacob as a good island protector because he didn't add Shroot to the lighthouse wheel. Should Dwight have been? <laughs> I, I don't know. I Dwight feel like Locke sort of has like the Shroot base covered in terms of like weird survivalist stuff. Yeah, and like, I mean, it's not a paper company, but a box company. Yeah, it's it's like, it's, you know, uh, it's paper-esque, right? It's made out of cardboard, which is sort of in the paper family. But I do like the sort of like, SVU idea, right? Of they obviously made a reference to uh, a, a paper company in Sloth, which is uh, which is the place of God. What is this? Not Dunder Mifflin, obviously, uh, but it's uh, captained by David Brent, uh, which would have been a horrible candidate, by the way. Uh, he would have been like mm. the arse of the group, where like everyone just would have wished he would have gotten blown up. But I do love the connections now of oh yeah, maybe there were would be some interesting office characters who maybe they were if they brought them in with the tailies, it would have been a very interesting experience. So they probably would have gotten killed off quicker than a lot of those tailies. Um other number 15 is so weird, and I'm only gonna read it because Ben Ben Martell, Ben, you do so much work for this podcast. But this is so weird, so, so man. Is like, Why this is are you gimme for Ben, right? <laughs> this is a Ben you're getting a free one here. I'm going to read this on the podcast. I'm very tempted to delete it because it's so strange. <laughs> ben writes, whenever I see Francis Heatherton, I can only think of Maxwell Sheffield from The Nanny. I keep expecting Fran Tresher to pop up in the house somewhere. Is it only me? Yes. Yeah, Ben. <laughs> I, I think that's only you. Maxwell Sheffield is played by <laughs> Charles Shaughnessy, who is not related to Jim Pinnock whatsoever. <laughs> Mr. Sheffield. Oh my god. Um Maybe maybe yeah. maybe that's why Francis is more lean towards Charlie is because of the company he keeps. He's like, "Well, you know who I married, so clearly uh, I have a taste and apparently you do too, darling." Oh my god. Uh Ben, are you like a big nanny stan? Do you stanny the nanny? Oh, are we going to have to do is that going to be our next rewatch St- the oh, nanny yeah. stands? Yeah, the nanny stands. Nanny stands is coming right up as soon as we finish Lost. Oh, my God. I, I say this, like, all as, like, deep cover for the fact that, like, I actually watched a fair amount of the nanny. I did as well. 
<laughs> Nick, and, Nick and Knight it helps you on those lonely nights. Nice. Uh, oh, God. Oh, God. All right. Final other bit of a roundup. Uh, Jim Fells, uh, once again, uh, with his music analysis, which we've already referenced, but also calling out to the fact that uh, that Mondo has just released uh, a live concert from Michael Giacchino, Lost We Have to Go Back, which was recorded in Dublin earlier this year. Um, it's available on LP and also digitally uh, right now. And you can go to Mondo uh, and buy this. I've already done so. Uh, we'll link to it in the I was, show I was going to ask, because I know you went to a Michael Gino, Giacchino concert in LA called Lost We Have to Go Back. Is this different in any way from the one that you attended? I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, but I know that the one that I attended, I don't have the music for. That's true. You, uh, so, you had the music uh, in your memories, I suppose. But right, like Claire, right. so we know very, those are very excited. Yeah, very excited for this. Uh, I think that people people should definitely look into it. Um, so we'll we'll link out to that. Um, Dallin Servo reports that we've upped the dude count by one, and we are now at a magic number forty two dudes on lock. Let's just let I, let's just stay here. Like, well, let's remember this moment because uh, we're never going to experience this again. Uh, the next one is going to be one oh eight, and then we're basically like. It's then, over. then then all the lost pertinent numbers are done with, and we're just sort of out there in the ether with every other number. Wow. Well, let's just marinate this. This is a special day. Absolutely. It's a special day. This is the homecoming podcast. Do the thunk it. Um, Sammy Kappa finished drawing Sawyer, and it's awesome. We'll link out to that. Sammy Kappa, the queen of Lost Fan Just art. in time for his big episode t- uh, next week. Yeah, that's right. We're coming up to Outlaws next. Second, uh, second Sawyer flashback coming right up. Uh, Mike, people got a lot of thoughts about the Walt Disney stuff. <laughs> I don't have a sampling of the Twitter reactions, but Walt Disney was all over down the hatch Twitter last week. They also didn't believe Galileo at the time. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yeah. Yeah. They didn't believe Galileo and they didn't believe Moon Muhlenberg. Exactly. With this big Walt Disney theory. <laughs> yeah. The middle finger to all of you from the middle finger himself, Muhlenberg. Uh, but uh, hatchlings, the term hatchlings got the thumbs up, put the middle fingers yeah, down. Yeah. That's that. Listen, uh, people, one lose, one win. I'm totally fine yeah. with, the, with, uh, with some uh, uh, zero MVP LVP points this week, personally. <laughs> A step forward, a step back. Speaking of points and MVPs and LVPs, let's get into it. 23 points. Mike, this week you're giving out two MVPs. I'm giving out three. I'll give out two LVPs. Mike, you will give out three LVPs. Uh, just the headlines, as always. Uh, Kate is still comfortably in the lead at eight MVP points. There's a four-way tie for second place. Four points apiece for Locke, Saeed, Charlie, and Son. And Jack Shepard alone in third place. Bringing up the rear, uh, it's still Christian Shepard with negative four, Sawyer with negative four, uh, and a couple of people in arm's reach of that as far as like active characters on the show, uh, Boone and Shannon, both at negative three. Um, let's see how the needle moves this week. I think for my first MVP point, first and foremost, got to give it to Claire. Did, yeah, I think, ditto. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pile one on there, too. Cool. So Claire's going to get one from you. So Claire's getting two MVP yeah, points. Uh, that's yeah, awesome. I mean, I think considering the situation that she's in, I think she did a very admirable job of handling very bad hand that she's been dealt. And I, I really do commend especially the the uh, the admincy for her to become this piece of bait for Ethan, considering, again, as I mentioned before, what the consequences of it could have been. So I think that, you know, Claire came back. She might not have her memory, but she still is like a roaring force, and this was a, a big episode for her. 
Yeah, for all of those reasons, I'm giving one to to Claire. I almost gave two to this next person, but I'm actually, uh, I'll, and I'll just say them both right now. I'm splitting them across the man of science and the man of faith. I thought both Jack and Locke had especially strong episodes in this uh, this week. Uh, I think I think Locke like can't account for the sea attack. I think that that's hard to that's hard to see literally. Uh, and I think otherwise he had really great strategy in this episode. I love how he rushed to Claire immediately in the aftermath of Ethan's apprehension, and Jack. A, advocating for gun safety, you know, and he he really tries his hardest to make sure that the right people have the guns. And I think he does a mostly good job here. Um, But he also kicks the crap out of Mm. Ethan. He's very effective in the rematch. Uh, And it's been a while, I think, since uh, we've we've acknowledged Jack in this regard. And he had a really strong week. I'm really happy to give Jack uh, an MVP point. And Locke's my boy, so I'm happy to give him one. Yeah, I would argue, I mean, could this be Jack's best episode as leader so far in the series? Yeah, I think I think that he he really stepped up here. I think that he you know he uh, he was a man of action. Him and Locke both were. I, I was really impressed with both of them. This week. Uh, and so I have one MVP point left to give, and I know we're never going to give it to her again. So flash in the pan, might as well throw one out here. I'm going to give it to Lucy. Uh, I'm not mad yeah, at that because I yeah. think you know she was is a fantastic person in the flashback. She finds a guy that she doesn't realize is a heroin addict, and like you know brings him into her home gives him a job like gives him a suit clearly wants to like get him on the good path to the point where charlie actually wants to get on the good path had he not been suffering from withdrawal he could have still been selling copiers to this day and so i think with all those intentions and the genuine feelings that she she ended up getting for him uh and i guess from simple sympathetic perspective as well i'm going to give her a point uh yeah i think that that's fair Um, other side of the scale here ethan Ethan Rama, I know that you had done some real creepy, fun stuff before him, but I spoke about this countless times in this podcast. You got super sloppy. And so it, he did not end on a good look here, Josh. Even uh, for being uh, the Bond villain that he was, uh, he did not necessarily get like the genius mastermind death. So I'm going to give him an LVP point here. Yeah, Ethan dies, so obviously I have to give him I know, your your point. rules really are, are easy for you this week. I have two LVP points this week, and two people die, so give one to Ethan, give one to Scott. Yeah. That's <laughs> pretty, pretty easy for, for me. For my last two, I was really trying to figure this out, because you could say, like, okay, I know people have their consternation with Charlie killing Ethan, and it was a really rash thing to do with his behavior. Could he get one? Could Sawyer get one for bogarting the marshal's gun the entire time and not telling anybody? Ultimately, I decided to give it to the gruesome twosome of, of Boone and Shannon once again. Boone for falling asleep on the job, and Shannon for deciding to reveal to a traumatic amnesiac Claire that everybody hates her right now. Just <laughs> bad, wow. bad moves all around. I feel like it's a little harsh to Shannon, but I mean, <laughs> and I, I don't know. I don't know who else gets LVPs this week other than the people who yeah. died. And because well, that's the thing is, even though again Charlie did something bad, like he was doing it to protect Claire. Even though Sawyer held on to the gun, he still was a part of the hunting party and an admirable part of the team. It feels like these two were the ones that did not make the most major infractions, but they didn't do anything good to balance it out. Unlike some other characters, right? Right. Okay. So. Uh, that does it, right? Like, that's everybody. Um, I think it that is all the, everybody. The board. 
That is all, everybody. I think it resets the board a little bit. Um, Claire is going to be in that third tier now of the of the four pointers, and Jack uh, is in that tier as well. Locke is in second place with five MVP points, and Kate's still in the lead with eight. Shannon and Boone join Sawyer and Christian at the bottom wow. of our rankings. Well, can't believe we didn't send anything to Tommy. <laughs> yeah, well, again, I don't know if Tommy is a real person, so I sort of held off on that on those LVP points and. I don't know. Uh, Sawyer might only be keeping company with them for a little while, depending on what happens next episode. I don't know. He's going to go on an odyssey to revenge kill a boar. And the boar's going to hate him so much that it's going to pee on all of his right, stuff. Right, but he, but he he's does... Gonna, and he's going to kill the wrong yeah, guy. Well, yeah, but he does get tricked by the T-1000. So we can take a little pity on him. Yeah, I guess to some degree. I still think he's probably... Uh, Sawyer's got a ways to go before he climbs <laughs> out of the hole, I think, for me. We'll see. And I love the character. Do not get me wrong. Uh, but we'll, we'll get into all of that. Let's get into the 4.2 stars, and let's talk about Homecoming's place in the pantheon of Lost as we are, uh, we are through this point in the series. Homecoming is Damon Lindelof's least favorite episode of Lost. Um, I, I, I'm not going to pick... I'm not going to pick at that nit because... Lindelof gets to look at Lost however he wants to. You know, he he uh, co-created this thing. He uh, he Jack Shepherded this thing. Um, he wrote this episode solely on himself. And if he if he wants to be harsh on himself about this, he he can be. You know, in the in the first episode of Down the Hatch, uh, and 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 since then, um, you know, I've I've talked about how like Lost Lost changes based on where you find it mm-hmm. and and where you are and where you meet it. Um, and when I did my really fast binge of Lost at the start of 2019, uh, it was shortly after losing my best little buddy, part of the cat, Leopardo DiCaprio. Uh, shout out to the man who would be best in show on the cat, uh, the, <laughs> the cat contest on the island. There's no way Pardo would have lost that. Uh, and Lost meant so much to me and really helped me uh, process the loss and, and, and helped me get through it um, and, and just helped. It was like a warm blanket during a really hard time. Uh, you may or may not know, but this has been a challenging week for many of us here. Uh, it's been a, a week of transformation for, for many of us, and it's just been a difficult week for, for a lot of people um, in, in the Down the Hatch community and beyond. Um, and I really needed Lost this mm. week, Mike. Uh, I really needed Lost today. And it's, it's, it's not lost on me that this is an episode called Homecoming. And I really felt like I was coming home watching this. Uh, you know, I, I watched this like an hour before you and I got on. And, you know, if, if you if you out there want to do the math as to like what day this was that we recorded this, this is November 19th, uh, 2019 that we recorded this. And that's going to be a very significant day for me for the rest of my life, I think. Um, and I loved this episode. Mm. I loved watching this episode. It 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 brought me such comfort and joy. Uh, it it reminded me of like the power of stories. Uh, and the power of the television medium and what can happen when everything is just like firing on all cylinders. And not that homecoming is a home run. It's got, it's got a flashback that you Does can it go around lead. 16 bases or eight. <laughs> I think it's like all, all 108. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's an episode with a, with a wobbly, wobbly, wop flashback for sure. Uh, but it, even then, like I, 
I watched the photocopier machine, which is scene, which is which is a, a scene that I've watched with such side eye in the past, uh, sideways eye. Uh, and I laughed. I laughed mm. really hard. And I think I needed a Dominic Monaghan showcase this week because he's so funny. He's like, his, he's, he's like the, he's like a, he's a clown in a great way. I don't mean that as an insult. Mm. Like there's like, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's like a jesterish quality to him, uh, really, uh, like a puckish nature to him that is just so great. Um, it was scary. It was intense. It was sweet. It was beautifully composed. It was beautifully shot. I'm not an insane person, and I'm not going to say Homecoming is a four uh, it point. It sounded two. like you were getting there. <laughs> no way. Um, but Lost finds you where you are, and you it, it meets you where you are. And Lost is a highly subjective and a personal show. And I don't know that Homecoming will be this way for me the next time I meet it. Um, but today... Homecoming is at least as good as Taboo La Rasa to me. Uh, and I'm giving it a 3.5. Wow. I'm giving it a very big score. Because uh, this episode, this episode I think actually will always be special to me yeah. now. now this it is will literally not did, be special, but it will, be, it will have a place in your heart. This is an episode that really did something very important for me. Yeah. Um, in, in addition to a lot of the people who listen to Down the Hatch, and even people who don't listen to Down the Hatch, who did a lot of things that were really important for me today... Um, this meant a lot to me. And just talking it through uh, with you, Mike, has been a hilarious, <laughs> a hilarious experience, but also like just like a really good discussion of Lost. Yeah. Too. I mean, th- it's, um, it's one of these things that like I, I love that, you know, no matter what episode we, we talk about with Lost, uh, it's just so much fun to be able to do it. I don't want to turn this into like us patting ourselves on the backs uh, while Ethan breaks our arms to prevent us from doing it, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna not be able to do it with like our our floppy. Uh, yeah, exactly. We'll we, be able to uh, still, like no control bat over. our arms against each other, I guess, to pat yeah. each other on the back. Yeah. But I mean, you yeah. bring up such a great point, and I think that's also why we have so much love for this show. Is is for some reason, and I'm still trying to unlock what it is. But this is a type of show where it's like I remember when blank. You know, and this is another one, like, I remember where I was when Ethan ended up getting shot by Charlie. And it's one of those things that stick with you. And it definitely colors the way that we think about certain episodes. Like, you know, I'm really excited to get to the concert. I have no idea how I'm going to grade it, but the concert will forever be one of my favorite episodes because I remember watching it with a room full of my college friends and all of us just being wrapped watching it. And it was a moment where... I felt like I truly had found a community of people. And yes, it was around a a weird show, but this was, I think, my freshman year of college. And I had really tried, before Mr. Muhlenberg, I tried to to figure out, you know, exactly where I belonged and what community I I wanted to fit in with. I had just been pushed away by a group of friends and, you know, trying to find exactly who would accept me for me. And it, it was in that moment where I sort of, weirdly enough, found my people. But that's a discussion for a couple of years from now. Uh, So I totally understand and i am so honored and privileged that i I not only got to be a part of today for you which was extremely important for you in so many ways but to to be part of this discussion all that being said i'm not going to give it a (laughs) 3.5 you're like all that being said it's a one no it's 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 not a one (laughs) it's a a point four it's it's not my least favorite episode of season (laughs) one i would put it above whatever the case may be and i think we talked through some of the stuff that i did enjoy about it i think the on island stuff is really interesting. We also should point out the fact that we did not get a B plot in this episode or a C no, plot. It was, just it was like, all, yeah, it was all of, happening, which I'm so yeah. glad about. You know, I think we spoke in previous episodes about like 
why do we need this B plot? Why do we need this C plot? Why do we need this A plot in the, in the case of whatever the case may be? And I'm glad that Lost decided to not divide its resources. It decided to not split its men out among the coast. It decided to herd around a central point. It's a game changer of an episode. Like you said, this really shows, you know, it was the first big bad. It was the first time this group was preparing for war. It will not be the last time. I really felt the palpable paranoia and tension from this episode. I thought it was beautifully built. The flashback stuff is blasé to bad overall that's only elevated by the performances. But I'll admit, the the on-island stuff was captivating enough for me. You know, I rated the Moth 3.0. If we're talking about Charlie episodes, I like this less than the Moth. Uh, Because I feel like, again, I'm probably going to pref character above plot when it comes to Lost. Just because I I love it. I watch it for the characters. And generally i really agree yeah with and that, charlie's yeah. journey in the moth both on and off the island is is much more enthralling to me than what he goes through in homecoming but that being said i can't deny the good stuff that they do in the plot this episode so what i ultimately settled on i gave special a 2.7 and i would say the stuff that i admire on island especially in homecoming is a little bit more than the character stuff i really admire in specials so this is going to get a slight bump a 2.8 for me our listeners are are obviously in between us. Uh, they gave it a 2.9 at this point on average, which gives a rating of 3.06 on average. And the rating of the moth has been 3.09, which is only uh, oh, they're gonna be they're gonna be fighting, yeah. The, the Charlie think. episodes are gonna be duking out. It also does help that uh, I uh, post you know and looking back at the episodes, I originally had mo- the moth at a 2.8. I bumped it up to a 3.0. Looking back on it, and especially comparing it to Homecoming, I still do like it slightly more. But yeah, this is still flexible. Yeah, you've, you've got yeah, the right to do it's, that. It's, for it's sure. you know flapping its wings from one placement to another. But yeah, it is weird that our two Charlie episodes are so near each other at the end of the day. Yeah, and I definitely I never would have come into this thinking that it was a better episode than The Moth, and I can't even necessarily say that it is. I just know what it meant to yeah. me. Uh, like I, I like again, highly subjective, highly personal. I think that Homecoming is going to be like one of those. Uh, the the way that like I feel fairly fiercely about Trisha Tanaka, I think Homecoming is is now going to become an episode like that for me. Um, what a, what a great treat! What a great surprise in the Lost rewatch! Yeah, like a nice this, this a nice Badafi pie. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's so fun. Um, so that leaves the rankings as whatever the case may be. Bringing up the rear, special in thirteen, Homecoming twelve, The Moth eleven, Hearts and Minds ten, Tabula Rasa nine, Raised by Another in eight, Confidence Man seventh. House of the Rising Sun, sixth. Solitary, fifth. White Rabbit, fourth. All the Best Daddies, third. Uh, the Pilot, the two-part pilot in second place and Walkabout still at the top, just above the pilot. 4.16 to the pilot's 4.15. So that's the that's the hottest contest uh, that we've got here. Uh, oh, Mike, what a blast. What a great time we've had here Oh, today. my God. That- and look at that time. Look at that oh, time. Mm, we, two and a half. Can we for a little Ooh, bit more? Yeah. 15 more minutes? No. no, no I am no. so... I'm tired. We're in a weird place in Lost, <laughs> even though you rated, you know, again, uh, understandably so, very, uh, pretty high for Homecoming. We've hit a weird streak of episodes, as I mentioned before. Next week, we get Outlaws, and I'm very intrigued by Outlaws. Uh, I remember this episode pretty fondly because it has, for my money, by far the best Sawyer flashback of his entire character. And this was a moment when I personally, you know, the, as I said, uh, the... The uh, confidence man was my walkabout. Maybe right, outlaws right. is my all the best uh, is is my like all the best daddies in terms of uh, you know a second flashback that really bolsters the character. I 
I really enjoy this character, this characterization from Sawyer's perspective. It's a much simpler episode. It's going to be a lot like special for me, where it's going to be much more character focused than plot focused. Because spoiler alert, uh, Kate and Sawyer go boar hunting, and that's yes, the episode. Do. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, they they have the great game of I Never, yeah. uh, which I think is obviously going to make uh, the sounds. We should probably play it in full. Would be my bet. And if that's really long, maybe we sacrifice a sound in order to do it. But we got to play that. Yeah, listen, I, I, yet another thing that Lost shares with uh, Podrick Payne. They've they've all played I Never. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. So uh, Mr. Muhlenberg and I will be back next week uh, talking Outlaws. Get your feedback in by, uh, I would say, morning of November 26th at the uh, at the. Oh, yeah. We're, this is going to be a nice little post-Thanksgiving treat for the hatchlings next it's gonna week. Be a, you're going you're gonna to be so full of all of your, your turkey and your, and your boar. And, and your boar. Yeah, whatever it is that you're eating on Thanksgiving, or if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving because either you don't live in the United States or you don't buy into any of it. Totally fine. Uh, we'll still be here for you. We're going to drop Outlaws on November 29th. Uh, your feedback, your comments, your questions for that podcast, obviously greatly welcomed for our 1516 Others section. You can tweet at us, at Post Show Recaps, at Round Howard, at Moon Muhlenberg. I'm sorry, at A Mike Bloom type. Uh, you can email us as well, down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. Subscribe to the podcast if you have not done so already. Your ratings and reviews, greatly appreciated. And you are greatly appreciated out there. Thank you. And Josh. Thank you, thank you, thank you. you. Thank you, thank you. are greatly appreciated. I know it has been circulated across the internet today, but I love you. And I and I, I, and I love getting this opportunity to, to sit around for two and a half to three hours and talk about a show where simultaneously you can have beautiful fading shots of a storm gathering on the horizon and a man puking on a copy machine. <laughs> yeah. It's a beautiful show in every sense of the it word. It is. It is. It really is. All right, guys. Thank you for everything. We'll be here. We'll be be here here every week. (laughs) All right. Take care, everybody.